Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 26th, 2017, and this is episode 2031 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday. And since it's a Monday, it is time for our listener feedback show of the week. This is the show where you send me your emails. You send those emails to jack at the survival podcast.com and you put TSPC, Tango Sierra Papa Charlie, in the subject line, TSPC. And uh, then question for Jack, comment for Jack, whatever. That'll make sure that it's sooner or later, at least, will get dug out of the spam bin if it ends up in there. Those of you that email me often, usually once I've seen your name a couple of times, I usually, not always, but usually end up adding you to my safe senders list so that uh, you don't get uh, you don't get sent to spam jail because some word or something tripped off the spam filters. But again, you send that email to me, and uh, the way to do it is make your point or ask your question, the bottom line up front type approach, one sentence, and then uh, hit the return key and give me a link if it's a story or something or if it's just a question, some details. But try to give me a snapshot so I know what you're asking about as quickly as possible, and it'll be more likely to get through my screening. Uh, email volume has been heavy this last week. I mean, heavier than normal, and it's usually pretty heavy. Um, because of that, I have a really long show. I'm going to spend less time on individual subjects today to cover more information because so much more has been coming in. Um, <clears throat> a little bit of current events, mostly question-type stuff. Here's what I have for us today. Um, first, I'm going to tell you why I have, for the time, exited most most of my Bitcoin position personally. Uh, I have moved most of my Bitcoin to fiat dollars. I've not gotten out of crypto as a whole. I'm not freaking out about the correction in the market that we're calling a crash. But I have some rationale by why I don't really want to hold most of my crypto in Bitcoin for the next couple months. I'll tell you about that. A listener discusses a prior question about endangered species with a little piece of advice I think is worth passing on. A question for you. Is Illinois soon to go down for the count, and what does it mean for you? Of course, I'm talking about Illinois the state. Um, and, you know, at this point, is debt necessary to even maintain credit? You might realize that, yeah, it is on some level, and we'll talk about how we can maintain credit so when we do want it, we can utilize it intelligently. Uh, I got a free recipe from Chef Keith Snow for you on his new cooking course. I got a question on the propagation of lemon balm. Uh, Cadillac is bringing a subscription service to the luxury car market. We'll talk about the, the implications there. We are, we, the mega trend that we are watching right now is access over ownership, guys. Uh, Gardner question, too much lettuce, but my pumpkins and melons won't grow. Help me. A listener reports back on the work sharp, knife sharpener, and customer service. And could cryptocurrency success move us more quickly to a cashless society? Sort of a Trojan horse type thing. Motorcycles as a backup vehicle. How to be a disciplined saver versus looking for a trick to save money. And what happened with the USS Fitzgerald? It seems a little fishy to me. We'll talk about that without delving into the world of Alex Jones conspiracies. Hawaii passes a law to, quote, start a conversation on UBI. In other words, they did nothing. But everybody seems to think they did something. Coming soon to you. A Death Star level uh, bug zapper. Yeah, like a bug zapper at the Death Star level. And homesteading and permaculture on property you won't own for the long haul. Special considerations with that. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. 
Hey, folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5% to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop bulkammo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it, check out bulkammo.com today and give them a shot at your business. So before we get into your emails for me today, let's go ahead and take a look at this year in history. And uh, the year in history we are up to this year is the year 14 A.D. I have one segment for you today from David Verne, Have I Played the Part Well, contributed by David Verne. In late July, Augustus traveled south to Nola in southern Italy. Battling diarrhea at sea, he barely made it to his family home. On August 19th, his last public words were, I found Rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble. That afternoon, surrounded by his wife and a few friends, he said, Have I played the part well? Then applaud as I exit. The emperor died a few months short of his 76th birthday. My take by David Verne. With both his public and private last words, Augustus meant them both figuratively and literally. After securing power as the only man left standing after a series of civil wars, he started, he started many building projects that transformed Rome into a city that looked like the capital of the known world. He also, as the first emperor, reformed what had been the corrupt cesspit of, the, of a republic where a few oligarchs ruled at the top into something a little bit better. Before the empire, taxes were handed, handled by private companies who would get, give a bid to the Senate. The bid was the amount they would pay in taxes, the rest they would keep for themselves, encouraging them to squeeze the provinces dry. Augustus did away with this and instituted a public tax collecting agency. His final private words about playing the part well would truly come into play later in the empire. The emperor was supposed to embody the perfect Roman, and they had to act like it. Augustus was not the most just or merciful leader ever, but he did his best to lay a solid foundation for the empire. Um, I think you can take from this that even people doing things that they shouldn't be doing can do things better than others would be one way to look at it. Um, I think, have I played the part well, though, I think that really that really sums it up for me with politicians. You, you might as well just call them actors. They, they might have certain things that they really want to do or, or what have you, but more than anything else, it's a part. It's an acting job. It's why maybe we've had so many Hollywood types actually be successful in politics. The better actor wins the day, so to say. And I think in the end, what we have to realize is we look through history and the history segments that we've done now, you know, over and over and over again, the, the, the constant with the state is, They may change the way they take and steal from you, but they still steal and take from you. And that's going to be a constant as long as there is a state. So we need to always endeavor to find the agora for ourselves, the, 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 the free market that always exists within the state, and participate in it as much as possible. That's my view. 
All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. So go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, The Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today. Click on members to learn more and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. All right, so um, I'm going to start out with something that's really maybe going to freak some people out and all. And I want to ex- say really big time. I mean, I've been big on this um, for a long time. The, about the only time I said what you should do with your money was when I first started the show in 2008 because I knew, I absolutely 100% in my bones knew that a stock market collapse was coming. And I said, get your money out of the stock market. That was all I said. I didn't say what to do with it. I just said, just go to cash, get your money out of the market. Bad things are coming. Get out of the way. And when the crash is over, you can then decide what you want to do. I'm not quite sure that's the case with cryptocurrency right now, but there is a major sell-off going on right now. And I'll tell you why there's a major sell-off going on right now, because there's a major run-up. If you have a major run-up, you're going to have a major sell-off. All of these new markets got opened up in Asia and, and what have you, and all these people bought in, and these people are in this to make money, not for some grand crusade to fight the man. So when you buy an investment and it goes up significantly... You take the profits if you're in it as a trader. And there's a lot of traders, and I don't mean that like the Benedict Arnold kind. I mean just flat out trading, you know, trading securities that are, you know, trading in this market right now. And a lot, and I mean a lot of money has been made. And there's a point at which when enough money has been made, people take their profits. So that's one reason I think the whole sector is in a little bit of a downturn here. However, I've been thinking long and hard about this upcoming August 1st soft fork. We're now just a little over a month away from this. And I don't want to get into the big technical explanation of what's going on. But basically, let's just give it the, the layman's. Like, if you know nothing about cryptocurrency, what I'm about to say will make sense to you. If you know a lot about it, you might say he's leaving things out. doesn't matter. The basics are the same. There's a problem in Bitcoin. Everybody that's involved in the potential solution understands the problem. It has to do with scaling. In other words, how many transactions can be handled per minute, per second, per hour, etc. And the overall size of the blockchain itself. There's several solutions at play. It looks like there's consensus on the solution for the first. It could go that way. It could go a different way. There could be a rebellion instead of a soft fork. We could have a hard fork and a literal splitting of Bitcoin. Okay, that's the very basic, untechnical explanation. What does that mean as an investor, or specifically as a trader? What that means is uncertainty. You just don't know. You just don't know. And it also sets up the table for some things like this. Maybe a lot of the people that are involved do know. 
because a lot of this is going to have to do with whether the miners adopt the solution. We'll get into which solution doesn't matter. Let's say a solution, a specific solution, how things are going to fare it out. So these are big companies that are in the business of mining Bitcoin, and they have lots of Bitcoin. Um, and they could move a lot of Bitcoin to another currency like dollars or euros or yen or you know what have you, or an alternative crypto, say Ethereum, etc., And they could wait till a point in time to go back in and enter their position in Bitcoin. And they could be entering that position because they know they're actually going to do what they say they're going to do all along. And they might be rattling sabers, so to say, just to put uncertainty in the market. Because if the if the 30-day price of Bitcoin declines a great deal, it's good for them. Like, it's not good for them during those 30 days because they're mining Bitcoin And they're getting less for their mining effort. But in the long term, if they've stockpiled a bunch of cash or other crypto that's a little bit less likely to fluctuate than Bitcoin would, they can come back in. That said, Ethereum's basically tracking down with Bitcoin right now. So did I dump my position in Ethereum? No, I did not. I decided I would move a large portion. And what I'm saying is 90% of my Bitcoin. So I'm still holding a few thousand dollars in Bitcoin. So if you're holding a few hundred, none of this even matters. Don't worry about it. Okay? Like, because that's what you usually find. The people who worry the most have the least at stake. Um, but I just thought, hey, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen August 1st. Nobody does. And then there's a lot of things that can happen between now and then that could drive the price even lower. That gives me the opportunity, if I decide it's gone stupid low, to re-enter that position. Um, if it kind of stays steady and, 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 and right in there and kind of moves around where it's been, and after that happens, it, it booms. There's plenty of time to go back in and take part in that boom. Um, so it just doesn't seem like the best play to hold it right now. I still believe in Bitcoin long term, but I'm not a believer in taking a bath when you don't have to. So I see some major correction going crypto-wide right now, but I see Bitcoin being most susceptible, especially not maybe this week, but in the coming weeks leading up to August 1st, there's going to be a lot of fear, and I'm looking for it to be ratcheted up. And here's how I feel about this. If I'm wrong about it, I just sat in cash for a while. If I'm right about it, I've either avoided a disaster or created an opportunity. I don't see much in the way of a downside. You know, what's going to happen? It's going to, in the middle of all this, in the middle of a, of a, a crypto-wide slide, um, and the uncertainty of a fork, it's going to go to $10,000 while I'm sitting out of it, right? In, in the next, you know, 40 days. I just don't see that. I just don't see that as being a risk. So, you know, I'll take my 20 grand and I'll put it to the side and I'll leave a couple grand in on the, on the table, so to say. And that's, that's how I, that's kind of the ratios I'm talking here. And you can decide what you want to do for yourself with this. However, I think you will see a continued amount of correction coming through the, the whole market. Um, I think cryptos that have done a good job of marketing themselves well and positioning themselves as value um, value over Bitcoin for in the long term or even the short term, like Dash, will probably hold pretty well during this. Ethereum, I think, is going to get shaken a bit. But here's the thing about Ethereum. All through this, these ICOs or initial coin offerings are not going to stop. And most of them require you to buy Ethereum to buy the coins. That's going to keep the volume strong. Okay, So you'd have to have a complete bloodletting to stop that. 
So I see Ethereum as a more stable currency over the next, say, three months than Bitcoin, even though it's going to have tremendous volatility as well. That in mind, if you have a lot of both and you move Bitcoin into something like cash right now, you do have the opportunity, if Ethereum tracks with Bitcoin undeservedly for some reason, to then get more Ethereum. So this is getting in the world of trading. I'm not telling you to do what I'm doing. This is the only reason I'm telling you what I'm doing. I've talked a lot about this subject lately. I do not want to one day look at Bitcoin sitting at $900 with a bunch of angry emails and then come out and say, oh yeah, by the way, I exited my Bitcoin position at about $2,500. You know, right before this big slide started. I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to, I don't want to deny you the opportunity to know what I've done. Uh, I made this decision, uh, over the weekend. And if I had made it Friday, I would have told you Friday. I told you as soon as I possibly could on the air. And I think that's the most, um, integrity-based thing that I can do is just to tell you what I'm doing, but God, please don't do these things because I'm doing them. Uh, just use the knowledge that I, this is what I've chosen to do in making your own fully informed decisions, okay? Alright, so let's move on to other things. Actual listener feedback, that might be more uh, fun than this. A, about a week ago, week and a half ago, I covered a segment where a gentleman wrote in and said he, so it was probably a week ago exactly, probably last week's uh, feedback show, that this endangered beetle on his property and he wanted to know, should he tell the government, should he keep his mouth shut, he had this big conundrum. And my, my basic short answer was, don't say shit, just don't worry about it. Keep making your property better. And then Eli came on the blog for that episode and left a comment. I think this is a very valuable comment, and it's it's part of the value of being part of this community, to learn things that you otherwise wouldn't learn or maybe you wouldn't think of. <clears throat> Basically, he completely agrees with my assessment, except if something happens, and then you might want to tell, and there's a reason. Here we go. <clears throat> Speaking from experience... By the way, I'll stop a second. That's always the best way that I like to hear information, people that actually have experience with it. The best thing that you can do when you find an endangered critter on your property is keep your mouth shut until revealing to the government that it's there can benefit you. Now I know you're thinking, when can the EPA ever benefit me? The answer is when it comes to fighting dun, da, 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 imminent domain. A while ago, uh, now the area my family farm was in, was in imminent domain danger zone as the state pushed forward with a plan to build a bypass connecting two nearby highways. Despite objections from property owners, the plan to build this bypass was charging ahead full steam until we were lucky enough to get some Polaroids of endangered birds on our property. The EPA managed to throw so many wrenches into the plans of this bypass and how to deal with relocating these endangered birds that were discovered in the area, that the project ended up being scrapped. It's an unlikely situation that anyone might ever find themselves in again, but you never know. Maybe a family of beetles could save your property from being paved over in the name of progress. Eli. Well, hell, that's, used, that's kung fu. That's crypto-savage, state-based kung fu using the state against itself. You can't fight the state over eminent domain well. It's very, very expensive. There's a lady on the town council in Dallas that needs to be like ran out of town on a rail. They recently was talking about a guy that did this successfully. And what she said, he's a very wealthy individual. And he's fought them tooth and nail on an eminent domain thing until they're, they're at the point where they have to give up. 
And she said, I don't, I don't, I don't get this. Why can't we just take his property like a regular person? What a scumbag piece of shit. And that's how government thinks. But you know who can fight government? Government can fight itself. And that's the best in the world, right? If you can think about getting a bully repeatedly to punch himself in the face. Like, get him so mad at himself, he just starts beating himself up. And you sit back there and watch him. That's what this was. Spot on awesome. So you have, like, and it's probably, see, here's the other thing, right? So it's probably like a local or state or county government that's going to be involved in an eminent domain thing. It's seldom going to be the federal government. So then you take, like, the county thugs and you bring in the, the, the federal thugs that are bigger thugs with, thugs with larger budgets and, and more, uh, you know, tentacles to get involved. Now, I, I, I can't say this is without danger, That they might not come in and say, hey, you know, you need to do this or you need to do that too. And you got to be careful when you invite the vampire into the house with you. But at this point, like, what do you have to lose? They're going to take your property and pave it over. And the, the, and the feds are going to come in and say, oh, no, 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 no. The striped-tailed foofy flu bird lives here. And its property must be protected. And unless you're, you know, you're doing some kind of... And whatever you're doing at present, they can't tell you that that harms the habitat because... Here's what it's it's actually created the habitat. So no, I have to keep doing what I'm doing, Mr. Federal Government, and I'll be happy to just make those bad county guys go away and go back to your pocket protectors and bothering somebody else somewhere else, which is probably what happened here. Um, so next, I want to move on to Illinois. So I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna bring in the story about. Um, the, the lottery, but basically the Powerball lottery has kicked Illinois out. Like, we can't trust you for your share anymore. Right? That's bad. Um, but Richard sends me an email says, Jack was right again. Not a good thing for Illinois' pensions. Illinois is completely collapsing as pension fund crashing and is crashing and needs a bailout. There's a YouTube link to a video by a guy. It's over 10 minutes long, so I'm not going to play it. You can listen to it. But the basic concept is this. Illinois is in a complete irreversible hole with pensions right now, statewide. This isn't Chicago. Now, Chicago is a big part of the problem, but this is the state's problem, not the city's problem. See, cities can go bankrupt. States legally can't go bankrupt. And there's a lot of scuttlebutt and information coming out now. Like, this is a brand new thing. Oh, holy shit, look at Illinois, right? Okay, like seven years ago, I was telling you guys one of the biggest financial risks that we have is municipal defaults and that somewhere in the coming years that we would deal with it in droves. And I, I, I said flat out that Illinois would be the first big one because you can bail out Detroit and you can bail out just enough of Detroit so that the press stops talking about it and you can let it burn. And it's not that big a deal. But when you're talking about a, not a already dilapidated city, but you're talking about a state, and Chicago, as corrupt as it is and as bad as it is, employs a shitload of people, public and private, both. Okay, It is one of the financial capitals of the world. When you have a state with one of the financial capitals of the world going into insolvency, which is what we're talking about here, It has a cascading effect. This is, it's, it's, here's the thing. It's easy for us in states like Texas 
who do a pretty decent job, not perfect, but a pretty decent job of managing our books down here, to look at a state like Illinois and go, told you, huh? it's a, as though it won't hurt us. As though it won't hurt us. Um, when this finally unravels, and it, it, it may be still years, but you got to keep an eye on this. The day that like the mainstream media admits, okay, Illinois is screwed. There is no solution to this problem. You'll see the stock market let blood like, I mean, it'll make this recent Bitcoin correction look like a day in Disneyland. Cause hell, it's still up like a thousand percent over a few years. I mean, you're talking like 2008 and worse bloodletting. When that, you got to think about the ramifications of that. Not, oh, Chicago's broke. Or Detroit's broke. Illinois is broke. Tens of thousands of people are not going to get their pension. And, and, and they're, they're already, you know, thinking about begging the federal government for bailouts here. But what you don't understand is the sheer numbers, like how deep this hole is and how deep it, it continues to grow. I mean, if you, if you go to IllinoisPolicy.org and read their most recent report on uh, debt in Illinois, you'll get a half-truth that's still scary as shit. The basics are that Illinois is $203 billion in debt on retirement debt alone. Just retirement pension debt. $152 billion in uh, state level and $50 billion in local level. But this is the thing you need to really understand here. This is a policy center that's saying, here's what we can do to fix the problem. Here's their three basic things. Offer more affordable retirement compensation for future work. State and local workers should be offered a starting pension as if they left government employment today. Moving forward, retirement savings should be contributed to an employer-managed savings account similar to a 401k used in the private sector. So here's what they're saying. They, they want all of the workers in, in Illinois to basically be given a partial pension. They're gonna, so this is all, oh, we've got $203 billion in debt. We'll just pay that. You don't have it. But basically, they'd say, okay, like you're at 15 years. You're gonna, we're gonna pretend you retired early, and then we're gonna cap your pension, and there it is, and you don't get your full pension, and then you can keep working. And here's a, here's their state managed 401k with shitty options, and the and the very government who screwed up your pension is gonna manage your 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 retirement that you're gonna self fund out of your paycheck. Okay, hold on. Reduced cost of living or COLA increases for all retirees. Lawmakers have already changed COLAs for future employers. Tier 2 retirees will receive a COLA equal to one-half of inflation rather than the 3% compounded COLA of Tier 1 retirees. Lawmakers should do the same for all state and local retirees. In other words, right now, the, 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 the pensions in Illinois are run like Social Security, and these people get raises every year based on inflation at an insane level, 3% compounded. And they want to go to um, one half of inflation. Okay? I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying this is what it is. And it require government retirees to cover a majority of their health insurance premium. State and local government should ask retirees to cover a majority of their health insurance costs, just as government retirees in other states do. The state should also give local governments more flexibility in designing health benefits for retired workers. So, you've worked for Illinois, and you've got your pension, and they are paying basically all your health care costs outside of Medicare. They're paying your donut hole. 
but they want you to now pay for it yourself. Okay. None of these in themselves are terrible ideas. What do you think the people affected by them are going to say, though? And remember, this is Illinois and Chicago heavy union, right? That, that demanded this shit in the first place. And what did I tell you was going to happen? When, all, when, when we were talking about this municipal defaults heavily, you know, four or five years ago, that eventually there would start to become failures in these systems. And this is what would happen. That the, the entities, the state, the policymakers, et cetera, would say, hey, look, we're gonna, this, is, this is not a joke anymore. We can't kick this can anymore. We're not the federal government. We can't print money. We're not the Federal Reserve Bank of Illinois. We're not allowed to do that. Stupid Constitution won't let us print our own Illinois dollars. Thank God for that, by the way. Um, so, uh, okay, guys, um, listen, we don't have it enough for everybody to have everything. We're going to have to make these adjustments or nobody's going to get anything in the end. And this is what I said would happen. The unions and the retirees and the existing workers would go apeshit. Take to the streets, smash things, get violent, etc. Hold their breath and demand, pay us what you promised us. And then if they held out, and they probably will, against these entities, that eventually the whole thing will go into collapse. So the collapse could be avoided with some hard, tough decisions, but the people involved won't let it happen. They'll demand they get what they have coming, and in the end, they'll get nothing. Tell me that's not the setup here right now. Tell You tell me that you think... The average Illinois retiree, the union member, the existing worker with five years left to their retirement is going to be okay with one. If you're still working, we're shitting on your existing pension, cutting massively what you were promised, and you'd have a, a state-run 401k for the last five years while you work here. Um, you're going to not get your cost of living increases anymore like we promised you for 30 years that you were going to get. You're not getting them anymore. Now you're going to get half of inflation while you're on your fixed income. And we want you to pay for your own health insurance premiums while you're retired. What do you think the response to that's going to be? Oh, wailing, gnashing of teeth, screaming, yelling, special interest news stories, showing some old lady living on a can of beans a week or something. It represents like 1% of all state-based employee retirees, you know. Because we have freaking school teachers on retirements making almost a hundred grand a year. Some of them making more than that in retirement. Well, we're told school teachers are underpaid. Yeah, I can show you the state. It's all public information. You can go find it yourself. I mean, how much can you pay a person to not work? And how do you think that these pension funds actually can remain solvent when they just keep doling out more and more and more? But what happens when this comes tumbling down? Do you think it stops in Illinois? And whatever the solution, see here's the, the, the problem we're in right now. This is what nobody gets. Whatever we decide is the solution for Illinois becomes the de facto solution for everybody else in this mess. And everybody is in this mess. It's just how far into it they are. Even states that we think of as being financially sound like Texas or Florida are in this mess, just to far less a degree. So the federal government can't do the bailout thing. Because trust me, Michigan is standing there going, really? Okay, let's just hell drive this thing all the way into the ground. Wisconsin, no, yeah, right? That whole area has this problem the worst. It, it, that, that whole area has this problem worse than New York and California do. 
But if you're in California, are not not paying attention. Hey, if you bail out them, you got to bail us out too. We're too big to fail, right? So the federal government can't do this. They know they can't do this. So no one can bail them out. But what happens? And think about the implications of optimistic long-term economic outlooks, which is what drives the financial markets, i.e. the stock markets, i.e. your 401k. When it comes, the chickens come home to roost and everybody realizes, oh, this is what it's going to be like. And then how much money starts getting yanked out of these individual bond initiatives and stuff like that? How much harder does it become for these states to raise money who are going to be the next Illinois? And then that is actually the chain reaction that's like pulling the thread out of the blanket and the whole thing comes apart. Just because I haven't been talking about this much anymore doesn't mean it's gone away. Keep your eyes on it and pay attention. This next one comes from Matthias in Utah. He says, <clears throat> Hi, Jack. Just more evidence of a failing financial system. My credit score is gone, at least according to my bank. I paid off all my debt over two years ago and have been debt-free since. However, I need a newer vehicle, and when talking to my bank for a loan, I know cash is best, but I just don't have it at the moment. They say my credit score is gone because I haven't used any credit over the past few years. If I get a loan, it will come back, they said. Seems to me they want to keep people in debt, which we know they do, and this is just a little trick they use on us. I want to give a heads up to those who are debt-free and want to go get a loan for a home or a car, Matthias in Utah. Yeah, it's almost to the point where, and I don't say it is, it's, but I'm saying it's almost to the point where if you don't have a car payment or a house payment, it might make sense to have one of those credit cards that you get miles or points back or something, you know, percentage of cash back or whatever, and pay your bills and have it set up with your bank account so it auto-pays the credit card, just so there's some credit activity uh, on your credit. Because most people aren't going to go out and ever buy a, a house for cash. And frankly, with the interest rates where they are today, I wouldn't advise you to. Now, making a disciplined approach to paying down your mortgage balance more quickly, I think that makes a lot of sense uh, over time. But like, if you were sitting on a half million bucks, and that's what you had, you were going to buy a $300,000 house, and you're going to take yourself down to a cash balance of $200,000, I would think, hey, you know, over 30 years, if you can't do better than 3% with your $300,000, then something's wrong with what you're doing with your money. And it, it, it makes more sense to you know do a 10% down $30,000 conventional loan and, and, and then mortgage that and then use income to pay off the debt and keep the capital reserves. So I, I, in general, I wouldn't advise most people to pay cash for a house anyway. Now, some now different exceptions to the rule always exist. But, I mean, I have a car payment. Now, my truck, I paid cash for, but we have a lease on our Forerunner. We drive basically, you know, a, a $42,000 vehicle for about $300 a month. So, yeah, leasing makes sense with that. And by the way, the, you know, I don't see how that works. Well, the last one we drove for $300 a month. And when our three-year lease came up and we just wanted a different color and we went back, they gave us $4,500 For the vehicle, we turned back in on a lease, $4,500. So with just you know the leased vehicle and a mortgage, our credit stays fine. So it's not something we generally sit around thinking about. Those of you with a paid-off home or renters, um, you may want to run some sort of credit activity. 
Just some little sort of credit activity. And I hate advising that because it goes against everything I believe and everything I teach, but it also comes down to the fundamental reality, you know, of where the, where the, where the rubber meets the road, so to say. That at some point, if you want to buy a house, you need some sort of a credit record to be able to do that. And it doesn't really have to be a lot. Um, it, 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 it really doesn't. Um, By the way, I want to make sure I, I mentioned I, I mentioned uh, in the last segment about Illinois going broke and the issue with the lottery. I do have that story in the show notes for you as well. Okay, next up, just a real quick segment here. Chef Keith Snow, of course, uh, is doing a really awesome uh, cooking course on meat, basically paleo-based stuff, uh, at tastyeducation.com. And to give you guys a look at what he has available he decided to share a recipe with you from his Ultimate Paleo Beef course. Uh, and this this is on a um, recipe for charred chili beef cubes with chili, onion, garlic, and ginger. It looks fantastic. I'll give you the basics of what's in it. Two tablespoons of ghee, which is basically butter, uh, clarified butter. Uh, one pound of sirloin cubes. One half uh, small red onion. Uh, one large green onion, one piece of ginger, uh, some Himalayan salt or sea salt, some Guajillo chilies, uh, and five cloves of garlic, a handful of cilantro, some lime juice and lime zest, and some smoked paprika. And if it sounds good, it's because it is good. And uh, you can get the full recipe and a video showing you everything you need to know to make this dish at tastyeducation.com, and it's a long URL, so I'm just going to say go to the show notes for uh, our show today, episode 2031, 2031, and uh, there'll be a link, and you can link on over and get that free video and get a look at what that course is like. Next question, I told you we have a lot of variety today, so here we go. Uh, what's the best way to grow lemon balm in a pot container to propagate additional plants from one? Details. I was able to propagate a single seed from an entire bag of lemon balm seeds. People aren't kidding when they say mints are hard to grow from seed. I have attempted to propagate cuttings several times uh, from healthy new growth. I cut just below a node and have tried placing it in a glass of water. Change the water every day and keep them warm and semi-humid, 70 to 85 degrees during the day, 60 to 70 at night. I've tried it in the dark. I've also exposed another to light. They simply die and produce no roots. Best solution in your experience to propagate mints from cutting of new growth, root cuttings, or another method. Uh, dry, okay, drying lemon balm. My leaves stay green 50% of the time. Other 50% they turn purple when drying. Is this normal in your own experience? They smell and seem to taste fine. Also worth mentioning, this is being done inside. I have an apartment, and I'm using a Kingbow Grow Light you recommended. It works well. Thanks for your input. Jack, okay, the turning purple probably has to do with a potassium deficiency that's not bad enough to manifest itself in your growing. Uh, so you probably could use a little bit more of an organic fertilizer for a little bit more of a well-balanced NPK. Uh, potassium deficiency is usually resulting in purpling leaves, so maybe it's just barely there, and when you first start drying them, it shows up and it kind of hangs with it as it dries. That's my best guess. I've never seen it happen with drying. I don't really know, but I've definitely seen leaves turn purple due to potassium deficiency. Um, so on minting lemon balm, here's the good news. It's one of the easiest plants in the world you could ever uh, propagate. It really is. Um, and the only thing I'm going to tell you is stop trying to, to, to root it in water. Um, unlike a lot of the other members of the mint family, lemon balm 
um, the stock is a lot more of a hollow stock. And in my experience, when you try to root them in too much water, what happens is the stock actually rots before it will, it will begin to root. So my, my best advice is make sure you're taking good new growth um, with kind of a thickness, some thickness to the stock so it's not too flimsy off kind of the end of a new shoot, cut it off, strip some leaves, and you know nodes are where the leaves join the stem. So you want to have a couple nodes that have leaves stripped off and maybe two or three nodes of leaves on, so a pretty long piece. And then one way to kind of get it to not try to run away on you and grow really tall and lanky is just pinch like the top, the top bare bit of new growth off. It'll make it a little more butch for you, right? And uh, put it in moist, not super wet, moist soil. And under those grow lights would be a great place to root it. A sunny window would be a great place to root it. Some place out on your porch with some, you know, some shade would be a great place to root it. And you should have no problems whatsoever with it rooting for you. However, of all the mint species, it's the one that seems to have the most reluctance to root. Because most mints, like if you put a piece of dirt on them, they start throwing you know, roots out. Um, so one of the things you might look at doing is using a rooting hormone. There's two that I specifically recommend. Um, one is a powder and one is a liquid. Um, the one that's a powder is called Rapid Root Rooting Hormone Powder, and it's what I most recommend for most people. And it's not as effective as the liquid, but it's damn effective, and it works well, and it's, to me, a little safer to use than the liquid. With it, what you do is you take your cutting, and you have your little, little thing of uh, your powdered rooting hormone, And you stick the part that's going to go under the soil or into the rooting medium into it and move it around a little bit and get a little coating of powder on it and maybe give a little tap on the side of the thing and stick it in, and that's it. That's the whole thing. And it's, it's butic acid. It, it, it's like 90% of these things are going to be butic acid, the liquid or the dry. The liquid, you're going to put a specific amount according to the instructions, and the, and the one I recommend with uh, liquid is dip and grow. Rooting hormone liquid, and it'll tell you, you know, for this strength, mix this much with this much water. You end up making quite a bit out of a little bit. It's very, very concentrated stuff. And then once you have that mix done, you dip your plant in, you put it in your rooting medium, and you're done. I recommend you wear gloves, both cases. Um, I have a lot more concerns for people injuring themselves. Uh, with the liquid than the dry. I'll tell you a quick story. So, as I said, wear gloves. Do I always follow every safety recommendation that I give? No, and I know that most people don't either. So one day I was I was actually doing some plants, uh, actually some goji plants, and I was just sticking them in some um, some moist soil. And I did put my gloves on, and I got my 12 goji plants, and I stuck them in the dip-and-grow solution. And I put them all in their pots. And when I got to pot number 12, I had no more goji plants. So I'm like, I was sure I had 12 cuttings. Okay, I'm not going to worry about this. I got other stuff to do. I take my gloves off. I start putting all the pots out where I want them to sit in the shaded area for them to root. And I look, and sitting on the picnic table, there is one goji cutting. So you know what I did. I grabbed the goji cutting, didn't put my gloves back on, I opened up the jar, I dipped very carefully into it, put the lid back on, very carefully put it into the hole that was already sitting there in the pot, very carefully, didn't get any on anything, I was careful. 
And I put all my pots out where they were supposed to go. And I felt no pain. And I looked at the back of my, my middle finger, you know, the middle finger you give somebody on my left hand, and I saw a very large growing white patch of skin. And I knew immediately what had happened. Somehow, somewhere, I'd gotten a drop, a single drop of highly diluted rooting hormone on that part of my finger. And I immediately just, there's no antidote, there's nothing you can do, except flush it with water. So I had the garden hose, and I ran the garden hose over it for like five minutes. It never hurt. It didn't actually get to be that bad. It removed a couple layers of skin. It turned kind of purpley red. And it was there for a long time, and it took a long time to grow back. And if you look at my hand right now, you can't tell where it is, but when I look at my hand, because I know what to look for, I can tell exactly where it is over a year later. Kind of soured me on the safety of the liquid. Now, the, the powder can be a problem too, but it's a lot easier to deal with, and you should still wear gloves and what have you, and safety glasses. You get the stuff in your eye, it's bad news. But what amazed me was the chemical burn with no pain. Which means you could get a large amount of it on yourself or your kids and not know it. This is also incredibly toxic to animals. The amounts you're using for rooting cuttings doesn't matter. It's not going to hurt anything, but like you got to keep this in a safe place. So I want to give a big safety disclaimer with this stuff. And I just think that for most people, unless you're incredibly disciplined or you're rooting something that's very difficult, that warrants it, The, the dry rooting hormone is the way to go. I have links to both of them in the show notes. People use them all the time safely, but I'm telling you, the, the, the consequences of getting a large amount of this stuff, the liquid especially, on your person is severe. It's severe. And right on the bottle, for medical people, it says there is no antidote. Treat symptoms. All right, so please be careful with this stuff. Another option is to use the, the, the buds from a willow tree and macerate those and make a paste and use those as your rooting hormone. It works pretty good. It works pretty good. For lemon balm, I would try it without the rooting hormone first, and if that doesn't work for you, then go ahead and invest in rooting hormone. If you use moist soil and keep it moist, not wet, you should have no problems getting lemon balm to root. On If you, if you can't get it to root, then by all means... Do a division. If the plant gets big enough, take it out, pull it apart, roots and all, and replant it. And you can keep dividing it and dividing it and dividing it and dividing it. Um, give it a good haircut whenever you do that so there's not too much growth. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Like I said, we're going to cover a lot today. Okay, so this one comes from Paul. And Paul says, um, TSPC subscription cars are already coming. Recently I covered a service uh, that was coming out to do subscriptions to vehicles that was not... Um, vehicle specific, this one is. It says, Cadillac will soon begin testing a subscription service for their luxury cars. As you predicted, car ownership is going bye-bye. Uh, and the, the website is bookbycadillac.com. And it says, Book by Cadillac is a monthly subscription service that gives members the opportunity to have one Cadillac in their possession at all times and the ability to exchange vehicles among a predefined set of vehicles as their needs change. For example, access to a large SUV for vacation or access to high-performance cars for a thrilling weekend experience. In short, for a single subscription, members have an entire garage of Cadillacs at their disposal. Requests for vehicle exchanges are made through a mobile application. Confirmed reservations will prompt a concierge to deliver the desired vehicle to a member on a specified day and time. 
subject to book by catalog, hours of operation, service delivery rules, and vehicle availability, end quote. Uh, they are rolling out the beta test in New York City, coming soon to a metro mess near you. Uh, Paul, okay, so <clears throat> this is what people are going to say. This is for rich people. Listen, it's always for rich people first. Cell phones, anyone? Compact disc players were for rich people at first. The first compact disc players were like a thousand bucks. Now you can't give one away anymore. I remember I was I posted a video on Facebook on the regenerative agriculture page of a robot, a farm robot that went out and basically got rid of all your weeds for you and uh, watered your plants, and you know with spot water and spot weed, and it was like you know. $10,000, $15,000 or something like that. And I had a whole bunch of backlash. This is for rich people. And, oh. and I'm thinking, do you guys even know anything about farming? Do you know how much a farmer has invested in a combine? Or just a front-end loader or tractor, for God's sakes? You know, and, okay, you'd need an army of these things to, to do a large organic farm. Sure you would, but, I mean, farms make money and they invest in money. But my point was, like, this is just, like, the, the first edition of this thing. I'm like, I'm like, there'll be something like this that you can have in your backyard. And lo and behold, like, a month later, FarmBot comes out, which is basically made by a CNC machine, and it does basically the same type of thing, and it's about 3000 bucks. And with enough tracks, you could have, you know, a row of 20 four, four by eight, you know, backyard garden running on this $3,000 machine. And people are like, so that's still too expensive. Well, I just saw they now have a little farm bot that looks like a freaking Roomba, like one of those little vacuum cleaners that knows how to recognize weeds. And you just sit it in your garden bed and it's a couple hundred bucks and it just drives around your garden bed. And it just, it just like has a little weed whacker thing. Whenever it finds a weed, it just, it just weed whacks it off. You see how this goes. Now, there's going to be 20 or 30 more products like this in the next two years. Not the, the, the vehicle. I'm still on the, the gardening thing. Okay? Starts out with this, this giant robot that only corporations can afford, and it ends up being something you can put in your backyard. That's the, that is the beauty of capitalism. That is the beauty of an almost free market. It's not a free market. It'd go a hell of a lot faster if it was, but that's the beauty of an almost free market, that products like that get innovated. Okay? When, you know, when I was a kid, I paid $600 for my first computer. It was a Commodore 64. It did jack diddly scrap. It really didn't do much. I mean, come on. It, we played some stupid poker game where you tried to see some chick get naked. It was a pathetic picture, but a bunch of teenage boys sitting there going, well, we can beat her one more time, right? I mean, that's what this thing did. It wouldn't even run a damn spreadsheet. Okay? You know? Come on. It was 600 bucks. Now you can buy a, a good clone PC, desktop PC for two to 300 bucks. Throw in another 50 bucks and get a nice monitor to go with it. Maybe, maybe 80 bucks for a nice monitor. You know, I mean, th this is the progression of things. So it starts out with Cadillac. Why? Because rich people have money. And if you are selling to, to, to anybody and you have rich people in your client base, you sell new things to rich people first. They will quickly tell you whether you're doing the right thing or not for your market. And then you figure out your economy of scale and your numbers and your profit and loss from selling to rich people And then you scale it to sell to your broader market. That's what's going on here. That's exactly because, come on, it, it's it's Cadillac. Who is Cadillac? Cadillac's GM. General Motors. That's who Cadillac is. That's Chevrolet. 
This is the largest producer of consumer-level vehicles out there in America today. You don't think they plan on doing this with everything? Because here's what's going to happen. This is how they're going to sell this. Okay, you go in to buy a car. Well, what do you really need? Well, I've got two kids, and we have to be able to get the kids to their events. I have to drive to work every day. So you need a nice, sensible car. So this first one's going to be like, you know, you get the, the Cadillac, you know, regular old Cadillac. You get the Cadillac Sportster. You can get the Cadillac SUV. You see how that works for rich people. But the, just the guy that has to go to work every day. Well, then you need like this boring sedan. But, you know, you do camping trips and stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, okay, well, what if you could have the boring sedan for nine months out of the year? And the other three months, you could pick from, pick and choose as needed, these other vehicles. And all you got to do is click a button on your phone, and within, you know, four days, three days, whatever it is, someone will show up and pick up your sedan and give you one of these other vehicles. And all you got to do is turn it back in, you know, before, you know, your time's up for using it that round and get, get a boring sedan. It won't even be the same way. You just get, a, you know, it'll be another boring sedan back. And you can do that for the price of buying the boring sedan or close to the price or a little bit more than the price of buying the, the, the boring sedan. By the way, it's a subscription, so there's a 30-day termination. So you decide you don't want a car anymore, you give us 30-day termination, whatever, and you walk away. And that's how it will start. It's going to be just like cell phones. No contracts, no long-term obligations. And once they move everybody into that model... You know, once a year you can get an upgrade, plan open to new members only, we'll buy out your subscription. They just same shit. This is a cell phone market for cars. Don't you get it yet? That's what this is. And what are we talking about? This is the mega trend. The mega trend of the time we're living in is moving from ownership to access. People want access to things rather than the ownership of things. And in some ways, this could actually lead to more responsible corporate behavior. Because if the corporation knows the vehicle or the product of whatever it is that's coming back to them, they have to come up with a disposal cycle for it or a recycle model, which is much more profitable than a disposal cycle. Now, initially with cars, what it'll be is they'll come off subscription and they'll go into the secondary used car market. And right now we're also seeing the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and the top 20% of income earners in America are driving 80% of the car market today. If you look at what the automakers are building, they're building more expensive cars than cheap cars. They still have the little puddle jumpers out there, right? The, the, the Nissan Altimas, the Toyota Camrys, what have you. But, but they're basically putting all of their focus on the higher-end luxury vehicle. And that's made the used car market is red hot right now. That's why when you turn in a Toyota 4Runner with 44,900 miles on it, that's three years old, on a lease, not owned, on a lease, that you're only paying 300 bucks a month, they give you $4,500 for it. Because they put it on a lot for like $32,500, and two weeks it's gone. It's easier for them to sell that than a new one, because the people that really, really want it can't afford the new one that's $44,000, but they can get a loan for the $31,32 on the high resale value. Access over ownership, and the rich go first. Leasing was a thing that only rich people did. Then it became a thing that everyday people did. Now more people lease than buy cars because it makes more financial sense. And most buyers buy used cars that are a couple years old because that's where it makes more sense to buy.
that model's moving here, but eventually you get to a point where if you have less people needing to drive, you have much more access to vehicles with a subscription model, you end up at a point where, okay, how do we recycle the secondary vehicles into a secondary subscription? So now now think about where this is, this is where all the car manufacturers are headed with this. And then if the autonomous vehicles come, they don't have to do anything. This model fits both. Ownership doesn't. Okay? So they're, 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 they're covering their bet on autonomous vehicles by building a model that works better for them in both markets. So now the second tier comes like this. You walk in and go, I don't have the kind of money for your, even your, your basic new car subscription service. Hey, let us introduce you to your pre-car, pre-owned car subscription service. Well, wait a minute, they're all pre-owned cars on a subscription. No, no, no. See, we, we run our vehicles in a fleet three years, 36,000 miles, whatever it is, right? That the vehicle's there for this many years or this many miles, and it goes into the Tier 2 fleet. And at the Tier 2 fleet, the subscription rates are lower. Long-term, there might even be a Tier 3 fleet. And you don't mind taking that older vehicle that's likely to have a major maintenance issue because if it does, you just get a different one. You don't own it. You're not even responsible for it the way you are with a lease, You have a subscription to it. That's what's coming. And here's what you should be thinking to yourself right now. How does this trend enable me to do something that I can make money with? And what the answer is, I don't know. I don't have the answers to all of your questions. I do have the right questions for you to be asking yourself, though. And right now, that is one of them. Next, I have another growing gardening question. David from Mass says, this is the first year we have started our homesteading planting season after three years in our new house. Uh, we have two questions with five raised beds. One, I planted six romaine lettuce and six basic leaf lettuce plants for three adults, two kids, and the plants are way overproducing. Are there any long-term storage solutions to big leaf lettuce plants? We are dehydrating kale into powder, but what about the other plants? Not sure. No, there is no good long-term storage solution for lettuce. Your best long-term storage solution for lettuce is to buy ch to have chickens and feed them all your extra lettuce and store them as eggs. They store much longer than lettuce. Uh, or you can compost it. Or you can get rabbits and feed it to rabbits or something like that. Or you can plant less lettuce. Um, or you can just take the surplus that you're not going to use and put it right to the ground and put it back into your soil. And that's a good thing. So there's, there's really not a long-term lettuce storage solution. However, what will make your lettuce store best long-term is when you bring it in, um, put it in the sink, soak it in cold water in the sink for several minutes, give it a ride in a salad spinner, give it a good drying off, and get yourself some Tupperware trays, Drill some little tiny holes in them, just two or three holes on each side. I'm talking about the, the big, like, like you'd put a casserole and you take to a potluck, like a Tupperware thing like that. Put two or three little holes on, on two sides of it. And I'm talking the smallest drill bit you can get or, you know, heating up a, 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 a paper clip straightened out so it's glowing hot and poking it through like that size hole with a little bit of air transfer and then put a layer of paper towels in the bottom of it. And take your well-dried but well-hydrated lettuce and put it in there and clip that. And that lettuce will last a good week or two. The problem is if you still have it coming in, right? But that's the best, that's the best you're going to do with storing lettuce that I've found. Uh, the next question. I planted two pumpkin plants and three watermelon plants. The leaves 
are uh, yellow and the plants are barely holding on. As I said, I have five beds and everything else is growing as expected or better, but not these plants. I've researched some on the web and tried some of the recommendations, but can't seem to get these plants to take off like the rest. Can't say enough. Your podcast changed our life. Thanks, David. David, uh, the most I'm guessing here, because there's no way for me to really know what's going on. It could be that you have those two in one bed, and that bed is completely different in its soil condition or the way it's being treated or the sun that it's getting or how wet it's getting or how dry it's getting than the rest. But my guess is that you have a potassium deficiency. That's the most likely thing because melons and squash like potassium. Uh, so you, you can't hurt things by using a good organic fertilizer Uh, and I would recommend Dr. Earth, uh, liquid gold. And I would recommend it, at this point, you use both the solid and the liquid. And I would recommend Garrett juice. Um, and I, if that doesn't do it, I know it's, I don't know what's going to. Now, let me say this. If they're already yellow and barely holding on, it may be time at this point to basically cut bait instead of fish. There's a point where plants get to where they've been damaged enough and stunted enough that if you give them nirvana, it's still not worth it anymore. So you got to make that determination for yourself. But yellowing is what we call chlorosis. So basically it's not making energy for itself. And another option could be you're overwatering. You can overwater. And I find more people tend to overwater than underwater their gardens. If you water too much, you can rot roots out. If you pull one of these plants up and the roots are just like bare, there's like no roots there and the soil's really wet, then that, that could be what's going on too. The other thing was when you overwater, not only does it get too wet, but also that too wet could also result in too little oxygen. It could go anaerobic. It can't breathe. And maybe your other plants are just better to deal with it. Maybe that part is in, a, the, these plants are in a part of the bed that's lower or it's more subject to this or something like that. I don't know. It could be that you've gotten a hold of some compost and that compost had some icky gick in it, right? It had some, you know, uh, some residual herbicide in it because that happened. And it could just be that the place you put that compost is where you planted these plants. That's another possibility. Um, but what I might, what I would try is a good fertility regime and plant. You got plenty of time left in this year. Get, do something to give the area some shade. Yank the friggin' plants out and plant some new watermelons and pumpkins from seed. And the reason I say to give it some shade until they come up is because it's going to, you know, this time of year the ground gets really, really hot with the sun on it. So I'm talking about something like, you know, stack a few buckets around it so it just stays in shade until those plants get their first true leaves. And then once that happens, pull them out of the way. If just increasing the fertility and replanting gets you where you want to be, then you know it's a fertility issue. That's, that's my best guess. Now, I wrote an article a while ago, How to Make Your Garden blow and glo Go and Blow the Easy Way on the Nine Mile Farm blog. I'll link to that today, and some of the products I talked about and some other ones are there. But most of the time when you have plants that are just not getting there, it's fertility. And when you tell me you're having such great results from your lettuce, what you're telling me is you have lots of nitrogen. That's, it's easily available. And your lettuce doesn't need a lot of potassium. And it, it doesn't need a lot of phosphorus. And so if you just have like a high, like if you're using a high nitrogen fertilizer only, like blood meal, then the other plants are completely content with that. And the other ones aren't getting it. Or it could be that the, since this is your first year gardening, 
maybe you're using organic stuff, maybe you're just using compost, and you're not using any type of a fertility aid like liquid kelp or garret juice or, um, or like a, a, an organic balance like the, uh, Dr. Earth is a good one. Um, if that's the case, what could be going on is that that compost is releasing enough nitrogen for those leaf crops, and there's just not enough biological activity yet to get the potassium and the phosphorus available, and there's enough to make a deficiency in plants that generally want a lot of it. You didn't tell me what else you're growing in all those beds, so I don't know. You know, If you're growing peppers and tomatoes and they're doing well, you've got some potassium and phosphorus, or they just wouldn't do it. But they're less needy. Squash. Squash needs a lot of potash, man. It really does. So, you know, make sure you're giving it that balance yield. Take a look at my article. See if that helps you. And let's take another one. File this one under something nice to hear. Um, this is from Mike. Mike says, hey, Jack, just a quick review of the WorkSharp customer service. The drive spindle on my tool broke off, and I emailed WorkSharp about getting a part. Here is the response I received in under an hour. Next time the subject comes up or you make it the product of the day, you can share this experience, Mike. So this is the WorkSharp sharpener that I've uh, reviewed. It's basically a belt sharpener that is a, a small uh, consumer-level belt sharpener for sharpening knives and tools, and I think it works fantastically. And uh, here's what uh, Mike heard back. Thank you for contacting Darix about your new sharpener. I'm sorry to hear you had an issue with your machine, but rest assured we'll make things right. That part certainly should not have broken. It may have had a flaw in the plastic that we did not catch when assembling. It's not part a part that's easily replaced, so I will send you out an entire power base. Let's remove the sharpening cassette. That's the portion that holds the belt, so you can reinstall that on the new power base I will ship you. To remove the cassette, simply squeeze the small lock lever and rotate the cassette back toward the handle. It will pop right off in your hand. It's illustrated in two grinding attachment in your manual if that helps. On the bottom of your machine is a silver sticker. There should be a small rectangle with a series of five numbers on it, starting with 16 or 17. May I please have that number so I can report to my quality department? Please dispose of your machine for me by first unplugging the machine and then cutting off the electrical cord. Once you have done that, please send me a quick photo that you have done so with kind regards, Faith. Wow. Okay, it's not under warranty, but that part just shouldn't break, so we screwed something up. We'll just send you a whole new power base for it as long as we know you've disposed of the other one and you're not playing us. I'm going to tell you why I'm glad to hear this. I recommend a lot of stuff in my item of the day, and it's mostly, I'd say, 98% stuff that I own and I use and I know it works. I also know shit breaks, and in most instances, the shit hasn't broken or I wouldn't be recommending it. So what I want to know is when something breaks... And it's legitimately that it shouldn't have like this. You know, not some, not some abuse. All I did with your knife was try to pry open a door, and it broke. Well, yeah, that's why it broke, you idiot. That's what not, knives are not pry bars, right? Um, so it's like, if it's legitimate, I want to know that they take care of you. Because it's, I'll tell you what, guys, it's a bit of a burden. Like having you know, 500 items out there that are recommended items by you personally, uh, you always worry that, hey, you know, if credibility is my brand, is this stuff going to come back to me in a bad way? And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to report over the year and a half that I've been doing this, it hasn't. In fact, I've been recommending products, not necessarily as a uh, an affiliate, but recommending products now for nine years. And I've not really had anything come back. And I, I hope that says something about the level of care I take in choosing what I recommend. And recommending only the best, or when I recommend something that's a lower quality product, saying, 
this is a lower quality product, but for the money it's good, and here's, you know, here's where it probably could fail eventually, here's how long it should last, and that's why I think it's a good buy. And I think we all make decisions like that every day, and I try to do my best when making recommendations for you guys to, uh, to point all of those things out. Uh, this one comes from Kiernan. Kiernan says, um, Hi Jack, could one of the unintended consequences of cryptocurrency be a faster move towards cashless society, which would suit governments in the long run, regards Kiernan? Uh, this is actually something I've been afraid of since the beginning. When I first saw Bitcoin, one of my hesitancies was, did government do this? Because when it's cool to do digital cash, and everybody thinks they're a rebel, then when you make your cash digital, everybody's okay with it. Here's how I, I really feel about that, though. So right now, 95% of purchases in America are digital anyway. They're just not blockchain digital. Think about this. How often do you actually pull cash out of your pocket to pay for something? Most of the time, it's when somebody wants cash because it's that gray market. It's the Agora. You know, it's the guy selling his boat, or it's the guy selling his car, or it's the guy selling his workshop or whatever, and, you, you know, it's you and them in the fence post, but everybody knows what's going on, right? It's a cash money transaction. And government, of course, hates this because it's still a huge amount of money moving around, and I would bet that the majority of cash transactions are not taxed. I occasionally still see people at the store pull out cash and pay a store. And when a store takes money like that, a big store especially with, you know, point of sale records and all, yeah, cash is paid on that, but you, or taxes is paid on that. Sales tax is certainly paid on it, but you know what I'm talking about. You know that the majority of people selling shit at flea markets are not paying tax on it, etc. Okay. So then the, then the question I have to ask is, if, the, if government wants digital cash so they can close that loophole, Who benefits if they, it, who benefited 20 years ago if they made the move to, to doing that? And the answer is they do. If you got rid of cash 20 years ago, the government hits a home run with closing down the gray market. Who benefits now if the government closes the cash loophole and says, we're going to AmeriCoin or whatever, you know, US of A coin. We're going to all digital. There's no more cash. We're not going to print. The treasury is not going to print and coin money anymore. We're just going to have a digital currency. Well, the answer is the blockchain currencies win. Zcash wins. Zencoin wins. Dash wins. All of the ways that you can do business very privately across the blockchain win. It just shoves all, all of the gray market into that market. Because, you know, like, okay, if I'm running a swap meet and a lot of my vendors take cash and the U.S. government gets rid of cash and goes all digital... You're going to see we accept Dash everywhere. I'm going to go to all my vendors and say, I'm going to put a Dash ATM up here. So people can convert their dollars to Dash and do business with you in Dash. And they'll be offering discounts for it. We take, you know, 5% off anything on the table for that. that. That's where you're at now. This is the problem for government with, with crypto. And it's why I, I do believe in crypto for the long term, in spite of my cautionary words about Bitcoin at the beginning of today's episode. Since they didn't do it first, The free, the true free market has already created a hundred or more options for it. You can't make them go away. You can't get rid of them. You can't really make them illegal effectively. And see, government's very careful about what they make illegal. They don't like to look like idiots, even though they always look like idiots. But they don't like to really look like idiots. And when they make something illegal and they can't do anything to enforce it, 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 it makes them look really bad. 
right? So they're trying to figure out how to play nice with all this stuff right now. And absolutely, I believe that governments, the state, wants a cashless society. It is absolutely in their benefit to have one, and it brings all of the below-board money above board, but now there's a place for that money to go. Now there's a place for it to go. And their catch-22 now is, if they did this with any sense of urgency, they shove people into the cryptocurrency market. I mean, if I heard rumblings of that, I'd reconsider my positioning real quick, and I'd be going hard, hard. I wouldn't just be reconsidering my crypto money allocations. I'd be reconsidering taking some of my cash, you know, my dollar-based positions, and moving them into crypto. Because you're literally shoving people in that door if you do that. Uh, okay, so next question, also by Kieran. Uh, you managed to get two in a day. He's actually more of a suggestion. It says, Hi, Jack, I keep a, four, a small four-stroke single-cylinder pushrod Honda CG125 motorcycle at my garage as a backup emergency transport vehicle uh, if my van is unavailable for one reason or another and my wife needs the car. I don't see myself as a biker. Rather, I guess you're not on a 125, dude. Rather, I use the motorcycle in emergencies. It's more like a bicycle that propels itself to carry a few small things. I keep uh, to the small, quieter roads really past 30 kilometers an hour, although a motorbike could probably do 65 kilometers an hour, and I put in and let larger vehicles pass me. Uh, when I do need to go to slightly larger roads or into town, sometimes I ride my 125 on the inside of the business lane, bus lane, which police don't mind because low speed I'm doing, and I pull in and give way to buses. Although I have a full motorcycle license, I wear a learner's vest, Uh, with a large L on it, which also gives me fool's pardon with police when I'm using the bus lanes. Uh, I just thought it might be an idea for some of your listeners. It might benefit from cheap emergency transport backup plan. Also, it does about 100 miles to the gallon of petrol. It's very easy to service oneself. As it has just one spark plug, one carb, and no computers or sensors. Everything is easy to work on. It's 17 years old and looks nearly new. I'm not sure how motorcycle licenses work in the U.S., But in Europe, any fool can pass the A1 test required to drive a bike up to 125 cc's max. Uh, I even know an old guy who travels on a similar Suzuki 125 because his hips are bunched and he can't pull himself in or out of a car seat. He rides it to his house. He rides it into his house through the patio doors. Uh, the A2 test required for mid-sized bikes up to 40 brake horsepower, 600 cc or 500 twin is more difficult. A full A test for larger bikes. Uh, greater than 47 horsepower, four-cylinder bikes, and large Harleys is very difficult to pass first time. Thanks. Regards, Kieran. Uh, in the United States, at least here in Texas, like there's one motorcycle test. There's not like this. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a. I don't. I don't have a license for a motorcycle, so I maybe I'm wrong. But as far as I remember, it's like you want to drive a motorcycle, you pass a motorcycle test, you drive whatever motorcycle you want. Um, so motorcycles in general is a secondary vehicle. I think is a fine idea. I think it's a wonderful idea. And I don't drive street bikes now, and I haven't driven a motorcycle in a long time. And I would have to really get familiar with it again to be comfortable. But I grew up riding, you know, motorcycles in the dirt. Uh, I had a, uh, a Kawasaki 250 dirt bike uh, that had no no third gear in it um, when I was a teenager. So you had to like rev the shit out of second and jump it to fourth. <laughs> But I bought it for like 75 bucks and then I sold it to a guy and he, he ran the shit out of it for like another couple of years at least until I left, uh, to join the army. So I have plenty of experience driving motorcycles and, and doing some pretty hairy things on them that I, I wouldn't do anymore with a little bit more wisdom. 
Um, but the idea for secondary, I like. I'll tell you what I don't get. And I, I again, I don't tell anybody how to live their lives. When I'm in the traffic on 820 or 635, which are two big uh, loops that, that loop around the Fort Worth and Dallas Metroplex, respectively, here, or 30, I-35 that runs right through the middle of Fort Worth or Dallas, depending on whether you're west or east branch, or I-30 that runs right through the middle connecting Fort Worth or Dallas. And I see traffic and people acting like fools everywhere. And I see some guy cruise, cruising down that road on his, you know, his motorcycle. I, I'm afraid for him. I really am. I, I, I don't know how people, um, day, day by day by day ride these, these motorcycles on these highways. And on some levels, I know that you, if you're, especially if you're a skilled rider, you can maneuver, you can stop faster, you can turn faster, you can do everything with more agility than a car. There's, there's no doubt about that. But when something goes wrong, not if, when something goes wrong, the consequences are far more severe. Especially when some guy runs you over because you fell on the ground in front of him and you didn't have time to stop. And, and I hate to say it, but I've seen that twice. I've, I've twice in all the years that I drove in Dallas-Fort Worth have seen guys that came off motorcycles and got rolled over. And just to those of you guys doing it, be careful. I mean, my, my web developer at Franklin Spearco Media, the company I had before I quit full-time to come do this, um, he was a motorcycle guy. He drove you know, the, the crotch rocket-style stuff. And he used to tell me, yeah, I take the tollway every day. And I'm like... You know, you don't make that much money. I mean, it, it costs, it adds up. I would have figured you'd take the back roads. You know, I take the tollway. I don't pay the tolls. Like, you don't pay the tolls? He goes, no, I just I just ride a wheelie through the toll booths. They have the things where the cameras are. He just would go on one wheel, and they couldn't see his plate. You know, that's screwing the state. I'm okay with it. But, man, it just seems dangerous to me. So I, I'm much more of like the secondary vehicle, the weekend rider type thing. If I was going to do that, I, I kicked it around. I thought about even getting one of the bigger mopeds once in a while, uh, just because they're so fuel efficient and so damn cheap. Uh, but yeah, the little motorcycles and like 125 is a bit small, like the 250s. I mean, you could buy a nice, you know, well in shape 250 bike that's you know, road worthy for not much money. Um, and, and they do have some, some advantages to them. Uh, personally, if I was going to own a motorcycle, you know, yeah, I'm looking at like a 1200 Harley or up is, is what I would want. And that would be like the bottom end. Um, but when I think about it, I think about, well, Jack, it's been 20 years since you've been on a motorcycle. And I look at where I live and I say to myself, self, you do the survival podcast, not the kill yourself podcast, and and I've chosen not to. And then there's just practical aspects. I mean, I've thought when I was a kid, guys, all I wanted was a sports car. You know, and I, and I look at what what what, uh, what Dodge has done uh, with with you know their sports cars and, and Chevy with the 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 revamp of the Camaro and even the Mustang and some of the used Corvettes that I see for sale, and I think. Man, I, I could actually own one of those now. And I think now that you can own one and you have to part with your money to do it, do you really want one? I'm like, no. And I don't begrudge anybody that has them. I think they're awesome. Uh, I stopped and took a picture of a 68 Camaro in the parking lot at Home Depot a while ago, and I posted that thing on Home Depot. I mean, on the on Facebook. I said, hey, this is a beautiful car. But I'm not running out to buy one. I think as we age and we put our, our priorities in place, a lot of times the things that we want in our lives change. Uh, and sometimes 
I think that's for the better. And sometimes maybe we, we get a little bit too conservative, and I, I hope I don't get too conservative in my life. So far, I don't think I'm anywhere uh, uh, near there. Uh, next one comes from Steve. Steve says, any ideas for helping to encourage saving for rainy days using technology? I'm looking for a way to help save some extra money for emergency funds. Goal is six to 12 months funds of expenses. I know that self-discipline and living on a budget are a big part of the puzzle. Maybe technology might be an extra way to help me keep my money out of sight and out of mind while still uh, being readily available for rainy days or emergencies can help me build extra cash I'm looking to save. Any ideas you have are appreciated. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good work. Please withhold my name uh, for privacy if you can. Well, I'm going to call you Steve, which is your first name. I never give away anybody's last name unless there's a compelling reason, and they've told me to. And if you giving away Steve makes you uh, makes you subject to somebody knowing who you're talking about, that's I don't understand because there's an awful lot of Steves out there. I even know a few. Anyway, so Steve, what I'm hearing is please help me save money because I don't have the discipline to save money. That's what I'm hearing. And, and there is a technology that I can give you, a couple technologies that will help you, but they're not magic technologies, but they kind of do give you what you're asking for, out of sight, out of mind. One is called direct deposit. You probably already have direct deposit. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this question is from somebody with a J-O-B, not an entrepreneur that owns their own business. Because entrepreneurs that own their own business generally, not always, but generally wouldn't ask a question like this. This is an employee mindset level question, in my experience, 90% of the time. So if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. But even if you're self-employed, you can set this up as well. And mo what most people know is that their employer offers direct deposit of their paycheck. What most people don't know is generally by filling out a form, just like you did when you first got your job, they're more than happy to do your direct deposit into more than one account. Yes. It's, it's not a big deal. They don't really care. Yep. You can go usually talk to HR for this and say, I'd like to change my direct deposit. And you tell them that that's what you want to do. I want to automatically put some into my savings account. And all you do is say, every paycheck, I want $50. I want $60. I want $100. Whatever it is to go into your savings account. And if you want the out of sight, out of mind, what you do is you open up a second savings account in addition to your general savings account. And that money goes there. And you just got a pay cut. Now, if you want six months of expenses saved up, then you say six months of expenses is X. And then if you get paid weekly, you say I can afford this much, say 50 bucks, 100, whatever it is you can afford. And you go that divided by six months, and that tells you how many weeks it's going to take to get there. There's no shortcut. That's one way to do it. Let's say your employee says, employer says, we don't do that. You suck. Steve, go back to work. Shut up. Okay, they might. You know, we, you, well, you can change your bank or whatever, but we don't do you know, split deposits. Okay, then you open up a secondary ch ch uh, um, savings account, and, and you get you set up online banking. And when you get paid, you log into your online bank, and you ch you transfer that amount of money over to your savings account. You'll probably find that your bank, and if you don't know how to do it yourself, they'll have some helpful person that will help you tell you how to do it. Has a thing where you can say on the, you know, this date or every so many days, make this transfer for me automatically unless directed otherwise. And then you don't even have to do it anymore and your bank will do it for you. Now, it's still up to you not to pull the money out of that savings account. And you, if you want to save like this, you have to basically give yourself a pay cut. And those are your two technologies, direct deposit or online banking. 
and you create this little bucket for that money to go into. And if there's any problem with it, it's that it's it's too easy to get it back out of that bucket. But at least you know what you're doing when you do it. You know you're not supposed to be doing it. You know, and 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 to me, that is probably the best that you can do. I mean, I remember playing little games with myself back when I was broke and had a job too. I remember that I would pay my bills, and what I would do is, if my electric bill was a hundred and forty-two dollars and thirty-seven cents, I would write the check for a hundred and forty-two dollars and thirty-seven cents. And then in my checkbook, I would write down $145. And if my, I don't know, my cell phone bill was $82, I would write down in my checkbook $85. I would round up to the nearest $5. And at the end of every month, and that just made me conscious about my spending. Like I would look at my balance dwindle. Do I go out to eat tonight or you know go to the bar or whatever? Or I only got so much money to pay day. No, I don't. And at the end of the month when I would balance my checkbook, of course I would come out with more money than I was supposed to have. And back in that period of time, I would write a check for that amount, less like five bucks to account for possible errors I didn't catch. And I would deposit it into my savings account. I didn't have online banking yet. This is a long time ago. And you know what? It was slow and tedious, but it did add up over time. But the smart thing to do is just to say... This is how much of each paycheck gets saved for this purpose. And then give it a bucket to go into that's not a common bucket. So whenever you draw from that bucket, you know what you're doing. And that makes you think. Because in the end, this just takes discipline. There's no there's no tip or trick to make this actually work. You have to want to do it. Um, so that, that's my best advice on that. Um, here's another interesting one. This comes from Randy. Randy says... On another note, have you thought about how a fast, agile U.S. Navy destroyer, quote, accidentally, unquote, collided with a container ship? I'm not one to believe everything GovCo tells me, but I'm not an all on, in on all conspiracies a la Alex Jones either. From the perspective whose only experience in the Navy was touring the USS Yorktown and Charleston, it seems like either a whole bunch of people were sleeping on their watch or something really dark is going on. Looking forward to your thoughts, Randy. Uh, on that, Randy, I actually want to play a news clip, some of the latest news out about this for you, and I'll come back with my thoughts. The U.S. warship that collided with a container vessel in Japanese waters earlier this month failed to respond to warning signals before the deadly crash that killed seven U.S. crew members. That's according to the Philippine cargo ship's captain, who says his ACX crystal vessel had signaled with flashing lights after the USS Fitzgerald, quote, suddenly started on a course to cross its path. Multiple U.S. and Japanese investigations are underway into how the guided missile destroyer and the much larger container ship collided in the early hours of June 17th. The cargo ship steered hard to avoid the warship, according to a copy of the captain's report, but could not avert the crash, which ripped a hole below the Fitzgerald's waterline, killing seven sailors in what was the greatest loss of life on a U.S. Navy vessel since the USS Cole was bombed in 2000. The investigations into the collision will examine witness testimony and electronic data to find out how a naval destroyer fitted with sophisticated radar could collide with a vessel more than three times its size in clear conditions. 
Another focus of the probes is the length of time it took the ACX crystal to report the collision. Japan's Coast Guard says it was first notified nearly an hour after the incident. So, here's the deal. You got a Navy destroyer. Now, this is not the most current uh, of our uh, naval destroyers. This isn't the one that looks like almost like a, a spaceship on the water. Uh, but this is a modern ship. This was built... I believe in uh, 92 or 93, something like that. Let me look real quick. It was ordered in 1990, laid down uh, 93, and launched in 94. So it was all launched in 94. It was a late 80s, early 90s model uh, ship. And it's, it's remained updated and very advanced with some of the most advanced uh, sonar and radar uh, that's available, uh, sensors, period. It has a speed, a top speed of 30 knots, uh, and the speed of one of these uh, one of these uh, cargo ships. Uh, maximum speed is about 15 knots, so about twice twice as fast as the ship that it accidentally had run into it. For you landlubbers out there, uh, a knot is 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 pretty close to a mile per hour. Uh, uh, traveling at 30 knots would be tr roughly about traveling at about 34 miles an hour. That doesn't seem that fast, but this is a big ship. Now, it's about the third of the size of the ship that hit it, the cargo container ship, but this is a big ship. And when one of those big ships is moving, you know, 30 miles an hour or more, it, it kicks up a giant wake, like a giant speedboat wake. It, it's pretty impressive what these ships can do. So I think it's reasonable to say, wait a minute, how does this ship with all these sensors get hit And basically hit T-bone like it, it was coming across the uh, the route of the cargo ship. So if you take your right hand and pretend it's the big cargo ship, and your left hand and you, you pretend like your right hand is going straight across your body and almost hit about midship, right right under the command center with the bow of the ship, and you can imagine it probably they turned off of each other. And what happened is the cargo ship then continued away for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, part of that time making a giant U-turn and coming back. And then this was all reported to the Japanese Coast Guard like an hour after it actually happened. Something stinks here, but I think the majority of the conspiracy theories are already going out way past Alex Jones' La La Land. One is it was actually an attack by North Korea using a Filipino cargo ship to purposefully attack a, a USS destroyer. Are you kidding me? Because if you actually were trying to ram a destroyer and it actually was paying attention, not only would it outmaneuver you if it really thought you were a threat, it would blow you out of the water. It's just dumb. Uh, I've seen some people complain, well, why was the captain asleep at 0100? Because it's all 100. Because you, you don't want your commander, you know, uh, uh, awake at all times because then he's sleep deprived and there's times when he sleeps. Um, the compliment of the USS Fitzgerald is fairly impressive. It's not like you have to keep uh, your commander awake 24-7 for it to run effectively. Uh, the compliment is 33 commissioned officers, 38 chief petty officers, which are like your senior NCOs in the Navy, and uh, 210 enlisted. So you have 33 commissioned officers. 
The commander was Commander Bryce uh, Vincent, and uh, he was replaced on June 17th by Commander Sean Babbitt, who assumed temporary command with the incapacitation of Commander Benson. So you had you had two commanders, as far as rank, on the ship, probably equally qualified at the same time, but one was the guy that was running the ship. And you have that because you, you have to have redundancy and things like that. And even if you had a person with a lower rank, they're qualified to run the ship. There's always going to be more than one person qualified to run a ship on the ship. One for shifts, and two in case somebody dies or gets hurt, because Commander Benson was injured uh, because this thing hit like right where his cabin was. Fortunately for him, he was higher up than the sailors below that were trapped in a compartment and drowned. Seven sailors died in this. Um, what do I think happened? Well, this is a guess. And then the question becomes, if I'm right, was it sanctioned or some kind of renegade behavior? I believe the USS Fitzgerald intentionally crossed the path of the cargo ship at high speed, at close proximity, for some reason. I don't know why. To test the capability of the ship, because they didn't believe the ship's warning and thought it might possibly be a threat, and they thought this was some kind of intimidation factor, because the commander was asleep and some lower-ranked officer had a bet with a buddy uh, and did some kind of renegade-level, childish, um, you know, Top Gun-level stunt, Possibly, I think that's the least probable, but it's people are people, and it's possible. But I feel like the Fitzgerald willfully and knowingly crossed the path of this ship, and I have to believe it only did that because it thought it was capable of getting past the ship prior to its crossing. I do not believe a ship equipped with the amount of sensory capability of the Fitzgerald was unaware of the approaching container ship. I believe it thought it could make it. And why it would take that approach, I don't know. But I think in the end, there's going to come out, it's going to be a human level error in this. And, and how much they'll tell us, I don't know. But yes, I, it strikes me as odd. As soon as I heard it, I went, wait a minute. I mean, collisions at sea aren't that freaking common in the first place, let alone a well equipped, highly maneuverable U.S. Navy destroyer. Um, something stinks here, and it we'll it we'll have to wait and see. However, do I think this is like you know a, a super high level nine eleven conspiracy level conspiracy? No, I think the the actual explanation, if we ever find out what the full explanation is, is going to be much more boring. It is going to be in somewhere in the concept of someone made a decision to make that route and thought they could make it. Maybe it was just arrogance, and no one wants to admit it yet. It, it could be what it was. Hey, we're on our way here. There's this cargo ship coming. Yeah, we can make. And now you got seven dead sailors and several other injured uh, over it, uh, plus damage to a multi, you know, billion dollar navy ship and the damage to the cargo ship. I'm sure we're going to end up being responsible for. If you were a police officer riding this up as an automotive collision, and you were going to determine who was at fault, there's absolutely no doubt who was at fault. Fitzgerald was at fault. Let's go ahead and take another one. So this one comes in from Dan, and it's an example of how people take things out of context based on a headline. Um, 
This and I'm not picking on Dan here at all. Dan says, I thought you'd find this interesting. Looks like UBI is coming to an island state in the U.S. Futurism Hawaii becomes the first state to pass a bill in support of universal basic income. Interested on your thoughts on this. I'm a little surprised that they're looking at it to combat the issue of future job losses that are looming because of automation. So at least that coming tsunami is on their radar. And here's, I'm going to read to you only a part of this article. You can read the whole thing if you want to. Talks about Hawaii basically thinking, acting like they're a, a, a nation, saying they're going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, sign their own version of the Paris Accord or some stupid shit. Um, but here's what it says about the bill for UBI. The UBI bill, the, the bill has two major provisions. First, it declares that all families in Hawaii are entitled to basic financial security. As far as I'm told, it's the first time Any state has made such a pronouncement, wrote Lee, who's the guy that introduced it. The second provision establishes a number of government offices, quote, to analyze our state's economy and find ways to ensure all families have basic financial security, including an evaluation of different forms of a full or partial universal basic income. The congressman thanks Redditors in his post as he said the, the site has become his first resource in considering UBI and added that Reddit standard TLDR at the end, the state of Hawaii is going to begin evaluating universal B, uh, basic income. Um, I wanted to read one other line in this. Uh, today, Hawaii State Representative Chris Lee wrote a Reddit post about his house concurrent uh, resolution 89, a bill he says he introduced in order to, quote, Start a conversation about our future, end quote. Accordingly, after much work and with the help of a few colleagues, it passed both houses and state legislature unanimously. Okay, why did it pass the state legislature unanimously? Because it doesn't do anything. It's very easy to vote for. It's very easy to vote for this. Nobody wants to be pointed out as a person that shit, shit on this. Even even among people that they think would you know be supporting them shitting on it because it doesn't do anything. There's no consequence to voting on this. It starts you don't pass a law to start a conversation. So they've made a statement that that, that Hawaii should make sure that all of its people have basic financial ability. That means nothing. We have had welfare in this country for you know a hundred years, and and that's what welfare does. Uh, and it, it it directs certain. It establishes government offices. That's that's code for it. it spends money to evaluate all ways that they can improve financial security for member for residents of Hawaii, um, including the potential for UBI. This does nothing. You don't need a bill to do this. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. It's not. A, it's not a story. This isn't news. Back in the, in the day. Uh, when when you know cable was a relatively new thing, I think it was HBO that had a a uh, a thing called not necessarily the news. It was like a comedy thing. I mean, this is almost level of that. I think it was Saturday Night Live had a thing that was why the f is this news, or maybe it was somebody else that had that, and they didn't have to delete you know bleep out the f word. But that's how I kind of feel about this. I mean, nothing about this really does anything. Like if you if you're thinking about moving to Hawaii now so you can cash in on your UBI, I mean don't don't get in a rush for that. This does introduce a couple things though to think about. One, if instead of the federal government doing a UBI, if a state does it first, what do they do to prevent basically carpetbagging? Right to bring back a very old term, right? So like if if um, Let's say 
Florida did this, and you lived in Georgia. And, I mean, you were just over the Florida-Georgia line, to name a band. Um, and you could move 10 miles, change your state of residency, and start obtaining $800 a month as a UBI, as a Florida resident. Would you do it? You, you see, almost in a, in, a, in a republic of states, it's, it's, it's very dangerous to do something that brings in people that would be takers versus producers. Not that many of them haven't done it already. So that's an interesting thought. If I can move to Hawaii, and I can get money for free? Because if you, if you do UBI, you understand how it works. If, if a guy like me, if it's, if it's 900 bucks, I get my 900 bucks too, just like the poor person does. And a guy way richer than me gets his 900 bucks. That's what's universal. That's part of what helps to make people not so upset about it and not so angry about it. Um, and it'd be a little bit more widely accepted since everybody gets it. And, of course, they'll, they'll take it back with taxes as, you know, they have the graduated income taxes. I, I think what you actually have here is a bigger move to start pushing the conversation. That's why they did this. Because if they uh, if they just created a committee or something like that, it wouldn't have got all of these these publications covering it. It just amazes me. I, I saw so many people discussing this on Facebook and basically saying, like, Hawaii is going to be broke or, oh, this is going to be great, I'm going to move to Hawaii. Like, both of those takes. I'm like, do you even read more than the headlines? Like, because if you read this, there's no way you possibly think this actually happened You realize what's going on. It's all about getting some level of attention to the issue. And you have a very progressive, very liberal government in Hawaii. And I think that's the goal, is to get this more on the national level of discussion. Because they don't want to do it. You think Hawaii really wants to do this? But then you can play the other side of it. Is any state already doing this? And I would tell you there's a state already with UBI. But it's very fluctuative. And it's subject to prices of a commodity. It's called the Alaska Permanent Fund. And the lowest payout was in 1984 was $331. The highest payout was $2,072.2015. Now, if you take that highest payout and say, what does that come out to a month? It's about $172 a month. It's not enough to pay for all your basic needs. But, I mean, I think there's a lot of people in America that if you, if you said, hey, you know, this program will give you $172 a month, will you vote yes for it? Without even thinking about it, they'd say yes. They wouldn't think about the longer complications and what have you. Then there is no free lunch type thing. Um, but, I mean, if most people had an extra $200 bucks in income a month, it would make a significant difference in their lives. I think there's a couple of things people need to understand about UBI as it's proposed as a thing before you get too upset about it. Because uh, obviously this goes against the grain of, of libertarian philosophy and people actually being paid for their time and being able to keep what they have, etc. Um, but you also you got to go into pragmatism. Like, are they going to do this and what would it mean if they did? The concept is, you know all those welfare people you get all upset about? Uh, you can stop being upset about them. Because all welfare goes away. Social Security goes away. Everything goes away. There is no more welfare state because the whole state's a welfare state. On some levels, that actually has some broader appeal. Everybody gets an equal stake. Everybody gets an equal shot. And then you should have less need to steal from people except that the numbers don't work out that way. Here's where we come back to it, what I keep saying. There is no way 
under the current economic paradigm to run a UBI and not have it basically bleed the country dry. Even faster than all of the other things that we're already using to bleed the country dry. You can't dry. You can't do it. Because math. Because math. And, and here's the thing. No matter how much it is, it will never be enough for the people that really want it. I, I saw a thing where people were discussing it and they were saying it could be $1,200 a month. And people were offended. They were offended by it being $1,200 a month. I can't live on that. you got to give me at least $3,000. What? What? I can't live on that. you got to give me at least $3,000 so I can live the way I want to live? I mean, here's the thing. There's probably a way to develop a currency model that allows for this, that makes it enough to pay the very basics. Like, you're going to live in a shithole, and you're going to eat ramen noodles and top uh, stovetop stuffing, And jack-in-the-box tacos. If you do nothing but this, that's the kind of life you're going to have. Um, it, it's, it's far more difficult than I think people realize, though, because there's, there's people out there right now making far more than UBI would be uh, that maybe have a family with two or three kids, and they're on food stamps. They're working, but they're on food stamps because they qualify, so they're getting them. And Well, you don't get that anymore. Now you get your UBI. You know, I mean, that... Could this ever work? And the answer is yes, but in our current economic system, I don't think that it can. And if you want to break down the numbers for me and prove to me that it can under the current economic system, then go ahead. I, I am happy to look at it. I'm happy to look at it. And that's not debating whether we should or shouldn't do it. That's about whether we could or couldn't with economics. Does it economically make sense to be able to do it? And... Uh, But I do think you could change the economic paradigm. And I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to think, and I've always said that the, the end game here is the death of the dollar, a, a new currency in, in America. And no, not the Amero, right? Like just the U.S. government creating a new currency. And I've been saying that long before anybody was talking about cryptocurrency. And I wasn't considering cryptocurrency in the mix. But since the U.S. basically can create money out of thin air anyway, It is very possible that we could we could delve into a system that primarily went to a, a, a VAT-style tax model, reduce income taxes to almost nothing or very little, you know, some kind of a hybrid of what they call the fair tax. If you think the fair tax is fair, you haven't learned anything about government yet, right? Like you call something the Patriot Act, it's not for patriotism, it's for oppressive government. That's how that works. Every, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act, it means unaffordable care act, right? So when you, when, when you hear something like fair tax, you should just know it's the unfair tax. The fair tax would, would amount to a 32% sales tax. 32% sales tax. So you buy a $100 item, it is $132. Here's the other side of it. Zero income tax and zero Social Security. It would replace both. Could you create some sort of a UBI combined with some sort of a fair tax, unfair tax hybrid that makes this new system basically recycle the money? Because if you give most of the people this money, they are going to do one of two things with it. They are going to spend it, which generates taxes, and when it gets spent, it gets respent. Money moves through our ecosystem. In many ways, a sales tax is a much better tax system for government than an income tax. 
Because you get to tax income once, and you get to tax spending every time that it occurs. So when I buy something for a dollar, there's a sales tax on it. When you take that dollar and buy something for your business with it, there's a sales tax on it. When it gets paid to that company's employee who goes out and buys a, a beer with it, it gets taxed. You see what I'm saying? Like The money just keeps getting taxed as it recycles through the system. And when you say, well, but, but the money keeps getting cut smaller and smaller because the, the tax has to come from somewhere. But if we maintain a fractional reserve lending system where banks create money and velocity of money increases a quantity of funds, you could actually have a relatively modest cap of the U.S. monetary, total monetary supply, of whatever this new blockchain thing they made that was spitting out of marrow dollars to, to fund all of this, and you could have fairly healthy inflation from the banking system with what looks like very moderate inflation from the government. And the government would have very healthy tax rolls in this model. And you think of it almost like Bitcoin mining. I know you're like, what? Okay, so think about it like this. A Bitcoin miner verifies a transaction, and when they verify a transaction I bought from you, they get a little piece of it They get, it's in new Bitcoin that comes out of the machine. They've mined, you know, a, we, I, let's say it's a big transaction, and I spent like 50 Bitcoins, and I bought a, a, a boat from you, big badass boat. And, well, they might get a couple Bitcoins. They might get two Bitcoins for that. I don't, I don't know what they get, but let's say they get two Bitcoins. That's new money. Well, they didn't really do anything. It was just computer power. Well, the government wouldn't have to actually expend the computer power to do the mining, And essentially, whenever they produced a dollar into society, that dollar would move through and come back to them over and over and over again through sales taxes. Of course, they would still have many government departments, and they could basically move that money through their own departments as well, which also would get spent into the economy. They could even spend it into the economy uh, through running it through their own systems. Now, I'm not saying any of this is good. I'm not saying they should do this, but I'm saying if you came to me and said, Mr. Spirko, this is going to happen, and you have to figure out how to make it happen, or we will blow your brains out with a 44 Magnum. Okay, that's my, that's my, that's my make it happen. That's how you make it happen. You go to a true, a true fiat currency based on blockchain technology with a fixed number of new units produced each year, You stay with an inflationary, not a deflationary model, because that's how modern banking systems work and function. That money is paid out to every resident based on you know their participate in this new blockchain. You move them into that blockchain so they do all their business in that blockchain, bringing up almost all the gray market money, right? And if you really wanted to be a bastard, and I'm not saying they're going to do this, but if you really wanted to be a bastard, well... If we see you buying any of that nasty old cryptocurrency, you don't get your UBI anymore. And there could be a whole list of shit that could keep you from getting your UBI. And there's a whole bunch of people that would say, fine, keep it. If that means you'll leave me alone, if that means you'll leave me alone, fine, I don't need it. I didn't have it before you gave it to me. But most people would become far more dependent on government. And I think that's the real goal of UBI. You could, you could talk about all this noble shit, but I think the real goal is, hey, in a you know, because in my generation, there's a lot of people that say, keep it. You're going to go to a sales tax, and I'm not going to have an income tax? You're going to do that whether I get the UBI or not. Yeah? Okay. I have no say in that? Nope. 
But if you do these things over here, you don't get your UBI anymore. But you'll leave me alone. Yeah. Okay. Next generation, even like the young generation, be one-tenth to one-percent. The generation that's you know, being born right now, like my granddaughter's generation, zero. Complete control. It's a small amount to pay money you create from thin air so that they'll do work to put money back into your system for you. And they'll follow you and do what you say. You almost wonder why they haven't done it yet. It's probably because they didn't have the technology to do it, and that's why they're all looking at it now. That, that, I, so the earlier question, could crypto push us quicker to a cashless society? Um, it may enable the move that's inevitable, yes, um, in some way, shape, or form. But I don't think it will be... I don't think it will be like Bitcoin. I think it will be far, it will be a new protocol that they'll come up with that serves their purpose because blockchain protocols in the way that they're designed design now don't really serve a central authority. But you could make them do it so easily. So easily. Just a thought. Let's take another one. Yeah, just, I'm gonna just go out on that one more time before we go to the next one. Yeah, cause you imagine that, like, like, just like, you even tell merchants, you don't have to withhold tax, tax anymore. Since all transactions are in AmeroCoin, and people do it through their application on their free phone that they can buy with their AmeroCoins, um, the sales tax is just handled. Every transaction is just immediately taxed. No paperwork. Guys, that's, if you wanted to do it, that's how you would do it. Let's take another one. Oh, hold on. I, so here's the states. I, I, I got sidetracked there by futurism, right? So I, I mentioned Alaska and the oil fund. Like, So how could Hawaii do this? What if they said there's a, a certain amount of tax that we charge tourists? And there's some sort of tour, because their, their number one thing is tourism. Their number one natural resource seems to be, as far as monetary generation. And they took some of their other natural resources and they, 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 public, they made them public. Or at least they said there's a surcharge on them. And all that surcharge got set aside. It probably wouldn't be enough to do the whole thing, but it's how states, it's how states could come up with something approaching a UBI. It's some sort of a surcharge, tariff, special fund, etc., or some sort of leasing to private entities for mining or whatever, and then just like Alaska did. And then you could do something to everyone, but not enough to pay for all of their needs. Um, again, not advocating anything here before I hear get hate mail. Just theorizing about how you would do it if you were going to. Next one, I would. I, I thought I would include something on some levels just for fun, and on some levels also future looking. Um, how about a Death Star type bug zapper? Except it doesn't kill rebels; it kills bad bugs, right? <laughs> just like shoots them. More like a like a, a an Imperial destroyer, right? Cruising around, but well, doesn't really cruise around. Sit still. Here, this is on Yahoo Finance. Um, bug zapping laser will only kill bad insects. There are good insects and there are bad bugs. And the folks at Seattle-based Intellectual Ventures Lab, IVL, have been working on a device that will only kill pests and leave others unharmed. It's called the Photonic Fence and has been development since early 2009. But according to Wire Report, it recently has been installed in a U.S. Department of Agriculture site in the state, in the state for a first real-world test. If all goes well, IBL plans to market the fence to farmers who need to protect their crops from pests. Using cameras and other optics, the photonic fence scans for pests within 100 meters, looking at each bug's form, velocity, acceleration, and wing beat, wing, wing beat frequency, 
When the target has been recognized as being from the kill list, the fence will shoot it with a laser, and the insect will be dead within 25 milliseconds. According to the company, the device can kill up to 20 insects per second and can cover areas up to 30 meters wide and 3 meters high, creating a so-called fence in its name. It is not yet clear when the trial began or when the results are expected. Although the test was stated to start this summer, there's still a ways to go before photonic fence becomes available for individual farmers, uh, not to mention us regular folks who want a good bug zapper for balconies and porches still pending the test results. It shouldn't be too long before we can keep our plants and living areas safe from harmful pests. Sounds good. I got some questions. How the hell does this thing work? 30 meters, 90 feet. So I'm guessing, it doesn't say 30 feet by 30 feet, but I'm guessing they're saying 30 feet by 30 feet, or 30 meters by 30 meters, so about 90 feet by 90 feet, almost 100 feet. 90 meters is almost 100 feet. You almost make that difference up with that little extra three inches there per yard. Um, but uh, and then three, uh, was it three meters high, so nine feet tall, so about nine feet tall. That, that's pretty good out of cornfield. But... If I had it sitting in the middle of a cornfield and there's a bug 20 meters away, how can it shoot it through all that corn? See, it actually seems to have very limited functionality to me. I guess you could, you could elevate it and it could shoot down like the Death Star blowing up planets or something, right? And then what kind of laser kills bugs but doesn't set fires to shit? I'm guessing you don't need much of a laser to kill an insect, is what I'm thinking. Is this the technology that's going to enable this? I don't know, but I think something like this might. Can you see something like this going mobile? Then you got something, right? Kind of just patrols up and down the... Because this is a... Realize, this is not a technology for permaculture installations. Yet. Remember, it always starts with the big corporations, the rich people, etc. Um, but if you develop something like this that could patrol up and down rows and how much energy does it use? Making it mobile would use more. Is it practical? I don't know. But it's actually very concerning to me long term. Because what does it make you think of? Well, if you can build one of these things that can go out and identify that's a squash bug and that's an assassin bug... And we like assassin bugs, and we don't like squash bugs. And Man, if I was going to laser beam something, squash bugs and stink bugs would be high on my list of things to laser beam. Because nothing eats the damn things. Um, it wouldn't be real hard to say, terminate this person, would it? Or this class of person? Or people that are of this race? Or gender? Or size? Or shape? Or not wearing this special thing that says they're allowed to not be terminated? I mean, it sounds like Rise of the Machines, doesn't it? First you build it for the insects, and then you treat the people like insects? I, I don't know. Now, do I think that's where this is going? No, but it's, it, it is a technology that has the application. It certainly would have, and you'd say, well, Jack, they're not going to have like some robots driving around in, in, in you know some post-apocalyptic uh, America terminating re rebels. Uh, who are in a database, just laser-peaming people in the middle of the streets, in some dystopian craziness, yeah, you probably won't. But what about a whole bunch of these things that go into a war zone and terminate the enemy? And some of you are thinking, well, that might not be so bad. 
Well, here's the thing about technologies being developed around the world. No technology is ever held in a bubble by the people that innovate it. So when you look at things like repeating uh, rifles, like the first people that developed repeating rifles had an extreme advantage, but it didn't last very long. Pretty soon everybody had repeating rifles. If the United States had remained the only nuclear power, it could have controlled the world. But very quickly, the Russians developed their own nuclear program. Right now, we think North Korea has nukes. There's a handful of countries with nukes. And that's because we've taken a very aggressive approach to reducing the amount of nuclear proliferation. But even the French have nukes. A lot more nations could have nukes if they really, really wanted them. But most of them decided it was easier to pick a side and sit under that side's nuclear umbrella. This type of technology, you know, I mean, this thing's probably being built mostly with Chinese technology. Squirming in your chair yet? You, you, you might want to. So I said it would be fun, but maybe not so much. But I, I do think that this type of technology is going to be developed, and, you know, using it to eliminate pest insects or pest plants without using chemicals is a big step forward toward less chemicals, etc. And this is probably something that in time could run on completely sustainable energy. It probably doesn't need a tremendous amount of power because of the scale that you're operating at. But I don't really know. If anybody has any more information on this damn thing, I'd like to, to hear about it because uh, this could either be a really great thing or it could be the end of all humanity. We'll have to wait and see. On that happy note, let's take a look at this question here from Anton. Anton says, question one, would making a homesteady permaculture improvements to a home that one plants to live in for the three to six years be a good for its value in an urban area? For the right area, could this be a good niche upside to selling a property? Details, I live in Norfolk, Virginia, and have a great paying, flexible job. So does my wife. We're spoiled with 10-minute commute times. We are looking for a first home in the area, and while we get situated with our lives and finance, we decided that it's best to stay in town where we have a short commute and where my retired parents live. They look after our soon-to-be two-year-old child children a lot. While our dream is to get out about an hour or so away, more country setting, and two to five acres, in the meantime, we're searching around here. The idea is we can get to work with perennial plantings, improve food growing skills, and have things like quail here in town. Our area is, as you know, military-heavy with lots of folks with money moving around needing housing, although a variety of people could potentially need such a property in town. I can see someone from the country is forced on orders to live here, paying a premium for a somewhat turnkey urban homestead setup. I know I would pay a premium for established fruit trees, microclimate irrigation. Uh, you have a larger percentage maybe of urban prepper types in the military than in the population at large. Uh, question two, have any of your listeners used or thought about using ship shipping containers as a catwalk or a bridge? Details, as a longshoreman, I see and touch and move those boxes all the time. I always ignore shipping container projects on the Internet. I think you are accurate in describing what I, what I pain they are, what a pain they are for almost all types of shelter use. They are specifically designed to do one thing well, and that's intermodally holding crap Uh, as it traverses the earth. Their strengths, however, are their corners and the floor. They would make an excellent catwalk between structures. An even better use would be a bridge across a ravine or a creek. What, is, what it is is a covered bridge. 
I was hard pressed to find a picture of this kind of application on Google Images. Most trucks can pass through if needed. I believe between the box uh, and whatever foundation design is needed for the ends would cost less than 10k and all. Heck, that's even got lockable doors for the zombies. Thanks again for all you do, Anton from Virginia. You'd make a hell of a bridge. If you had a homestead where to drive in, you needed to cross a ravine of some kind, and you, you'd have to put some good pylons in to support that floor. But yeah, you could drive a truck, a car, right through the damn thing. And, and when you didn't want anybody in there, you'd have to cut the one end off, right? And the other end, you just close the doors and lock it. Uh, and if you if you close the doors on the uh, on the you know the home side when you're home, it would be all but impossible to get into. You know, you'd, there'd be a lot of work to get through those doors that way. The, the, the problem I see with that is that that's true either way. It's either going to be easy to lock yourself out or lock yourself in, right? So um, I don't know the doors would be a, a standard, you know, security feature, but I guess they could use used in the evening when everybody's home because those doors only open from the, the outside, right? So I guess what you could do is, is weld stuff, and set up a set of doors on each side of it so that you could just lock. But that's no better than any old gate. But uh, I, I guess they would make a kind of a cool-looking covered bridge. I did have a picture I posted on Facebook one time of somebody who used one as a culvert, and it was a very good of explanation of why you don't bury them, because it completely collapsed on itself. Um, you can bury one, and you can do the things right so that it won't collapse onto itself. And by the time you did that, there was a less expensive way to build an underground house. That's just how it comes out. Almost anything you would do with them, by the time you spend all the money and effort you need to to make them work, there was a less expensive way to build a house and a better way to build a house. I, I don't want to say that because I want this to be a, I want this to be a thing. I think there's tons of them out there. Uh, there's a lot of utility once it's done, but it just doesn't seem like it has enough advantages to be worth all of the hassles in actually getting it done. From what I've seen so far, let's start. Let's, let's actually answer the, the more important question here about this is a real estate question. So the question is, if I'm going to only own a house for three to six years, do I really urban homestead the thing up? And I think the answer is yes, but with an eye toward resale toward everybody. So what you do should be mainstream acceptable or easily gotten rid of. So if you put in like a nice chicken coop and run. It should be set up to where somebody could easily see that, you know what I could do with that? I could just change that door, and it'd be a nice place for the dog to go when I want the dog outside but not able to run around. And it could be for the dog. Uh, or, it, boy, that would be easy to get rid of. You know, so that when somebody moves in that doesn't want it, they, they don't have to have it. Garden beds are great because people look at gardens, and people that even don't want a garden think, oh, yeah, I might have a garden someday. Or they think, I'll just put flowers in there. I'll just put flowers in there. Um, but any kind of major alterations, you start doing you know, micro earthworks and stuff like that that transform a backyard, you have to really think about it because here's what you don't want to do. I don't care that somebody will pay a premium for something. I care about eliminating 90% of my potential market. Fruit trees, sheet mulching, all that good stuff, You know, garden ponds, all that. You, you can make an oasis. But you got to make it and think to yourself, will the average person still buy this property? And when you do something that you change that answer to no, if you're a short term on the property, you shouldn't do it. And that's that's just a hard rule for me. So 
it very much limited what I was willing to do to my property and all. We definitely planted fruit trees. We put in a garden, right? But I didn't start tearing the whole yard up. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to be there long enough to complete it and you know what you're doing, so you do have footpath swales and everything's beautifully mulched and you have little gardens here and there and you could set it up. And what I would definitely do is you set up for low maintenance And, and part of that book I talk about putting together, you have a guidebook to that maintenance so somebody can look at it and say, oh, this is all I got to do? Oh, this is easier than mowing the grass. And leave the front yard mostly alone. Maybe some of your little islands and stuff, you do some herb gardening and stuff like that that looks like ornamentals or you know some ornamental chart or something like that. But don't, don't terraform the front yard. You want the person to go, wow, this is, this is nice. And they go out in the backyard and go, holy crap, this is an oasis. That's how you have to think. You have to think like HOA permaculture. Shows I've talked about doing that as things to look at. And otherwise, yes. Fruit trees, I don't see anybody going, damn it, this guy has like three pear trees here. I don't want that. Right? I just don't see that. Or look at that garden. I hate gardens. But it all has to look really good when you're doing the suburban thing and you're planning on resale. It really has to look good, and it has to be something the average person will buy. Because, again, you don't want a niche market real estate. You want real estate that you can mass market and may command a premium from a niche. Those are very, very different things. Niche means you have, you have pushed away a big part of the market, right? But if you have a vertical within the mass market that you can attract, you can even try marketing to that niche first. And if it doesn't work, you can just sell as regular real property. My thoughts on that. Anyway, with that, we are done with today's main part of the show. I do want to remind you guys, if you want to support the show and you like the work that we do, one of the ways that you can do that is you can do that by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. tspaz.com will show you lots of stuff. Like one thing you can do is see the deals of the day from Amazon. And again, whenever you're shopping online through tspaz.com, you help support our show. And you'll also see the reviews that we do all the time on uh, the Survival Podcast uh, of products that I have used uh generally speaking, off Amazon.com. And today is a Encore item, one I brought around to you guys last year. It is kind of an upgrade to an item that I've been carrying and using for over six years. Uh, I am a huge fan of a flashlight called the Streamlight Stylus Pro. The Streamlight Stylus Pro uses two AAA batteries. It fits in your pocket like a, you know, like a pen, basically, because it's like a pen light. It actually is a pretty good Cubiton as a defensive tool. Uh, it's very bright, and it's very affordable. They're about 21 bucks. Well, last year at one of my workshops, a guy walks up to me and hands me what I think is a Streamlight Stylus Pro, but it's got this kind of a little extra collar-looking thing on it. And I said, oh, what is this? He says, it's, it's, and he says, pull on it. So I pull the collar back, and there's a USB port there. He says, it's rechargeable. You plug it into the wall or to your computer with a mini USB cable, and it recharges the two lithium-ion batteries in there. How much is it? Well, uh, it's like $42 or something like that now. So I'm like, okay, so it's twice as much. It's $41 versus the original $21. $20 more. Is it worth the additional cost? So I'm a big believer in, well, you don't do things because you feel them. You do the math. So here's the math I came up with. The lithium-ion battery pack that's in the rechargeable will give you three and a half hours of light on one charge where the original will give you six and a half hours on one set of alkaline batteries. So you have less battery time. Call that half as good, but the lithium battery will have a lifespan of about 300 recharges. 
That is equivalent to 150 sets of AAA batteries. That would be about $75 in AAA based on bulk pricing on Duracell AAAs. That gives us a cost of about $96 on the original compared to $42 on the rechargeable. So in the end, the lifetime cost of the product is about half. That's a $54 savings, and if you do wear it out, you still have some options. The best, you can buy the actual replacement part for $15. And uh, Streamlight has one of those. You buy that pack, you drop it in, and you got another 300 recharges. The battery pack, though, is just really two lithium-ion AAAs in a solid pack. This means you could just drop in any rechargeable AAA lithium-ion batteries and rock on. Or you could then just use regular AAA alkaline batteries. You can't recharge those, but now you're back to having what you would have bought in the first place. And you still have the option to go back. So I like having those options. I think that's really cool. So which one should you buy? I think you should buy the one that makes the most sense for you based on what you want to do with it. Personally, um, I'm a big believer in spreading prepping. So what I tend to do, these $21 Streamlight Stylus Pros, I usually buy a couple, like, like two at a time. Because I'll always misplace one. I can go to my drawer and get another one. And sooner or later, I'll be having a conversation with somebody, and I'll say, what do you do? And there's a lot of times that I'll start talking about preparedness, and I'll, they'll be like, whoa, like survivalism and doomsday preppers. But no, like just basic stuff. Like, you know, hey, I carry this little light. Check this little light out. It fits in your pocket. It does this. It does that. You can use it. as. And they're like, wow, that's pretty cool. I'm like, I'll tell you what. I'll give you that if you promise to go listen to a couple episodes of my show. Or I'll do that with a Gerber EAB, the exchange blade, the little $6 uh, razor knife. They're, they're tools that I use as evangelistic tools. And I don't go around doing this every day. You know, certain people in certain situations. So I'm probably less likely to give away the rechargeable one than I am the stock one. So I've kind of stuck to those stock ones because those are two of my big evangelical tools. And they're for family and friends too, so much not to get them to listen to my show, but like to get them on board with a little bit of concept of prepping. Because then they'll usually, like instead of like forcing it, I'm like, here, just carry this and use it. Let me know in a week if you've used it at all. Like, I haven't used it. Give it back then, jerk, right? You know, and if they've used it, you say, well, is it good that you have that? Now? Yeah, and then you can talk to them about other things. So that's why I'm still kind of more on the stock one. Uh, but I think if you're going to carry it every day and use it for yourself and you don't misplace your shit like I do, because i got these gnomes that steal my stuff, um, the, it, it financially, the rechargeable one makes more sense. It absolutely does. Uh, and then three and a half hours of light time for a pen light, you know, that's not something you stick on and put up on the wall with bubble gum and, and light your room with. That's a long time, and you can always recharge it before it's uh, fully discharged, especially given it's lithium battery. So check it out. The, steel, uh, the Streamlight Stylus Pro USB Rechargeable Light is our item of the day today. You'll find it at T-Spaz. That brings us to our song of the day. This is a song by Shaw Blades called My Hallucination. Now, I had no idea who Shaw Blades was. None. And uh, I, 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 I was like, this just be some crazy metal shit or something, you know? Where, ah, 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 like, so I, I clicked on it, and I'm going to have purists pissed off at me right away today when I say this. So don't listen to this as a purist. I'm saying this as somebody that doesn't have a perfect ear or anything, and I'm not saying it sounds the same as... But it immediately hit me, the, the guitar hit me with almost like a Stevie Ray Vaughan type of uh, sound. Not Steve, not like it sounded like Stevie Ray Vaughan before you get all pissed at me. Like it's just like that kind of style of kind of bluesy guitar, right? Um, and I, it found out that's not what all of their songs sound like. Who is Shaw Blades? Well, it's the last name of the two. It's a duo. Shaw Blades is a, a musical group formed by Tommy Shaw of Styx and Jack Blades of Night Ranger. 
And I guess they first met as part of the group called Damn Yankees. And Damn Yankees was like a, a, a super group uh, of, uh, of rock guys. Ted Nugent, I think, was the one that really put it together uh, in the 90s. They had the, their, uh, their biggest hit was called Higher, or Can You Take Me Higher, or something like that. If you heard it, you'd probably know it if you're from the 80s. Um, and then these guys got together in the 90s. And then when I started listening to it, I'm like, I have heard this song somewhere before. I don't know where, but I've heard, like, this is not a song that made it big on mainstream radio or something like that, but I have heard this song before. It turns out it was in the movie Tommy Boy. <laughs> it was in the movie Tommy Boy. Um, but it's, it's an awesome song in its own right, and the lyrics are kind of cryptic and kind of obvious at the same time. It's a mixture of historical events and past songs, mostly, in there. This is like the first group. Manson lived, Lennon died. You don't know the reason why I'm crying. 30 years, enough time for me. Tell me who shot Kennedy. I'm dying. So those are pretty obvious references, right? To the Charles Manson thing and, and John Lennon being shot and Kennedy being shot. But then the next line is, Long Tall Sally, She Comes and Goes. So that's obviously the song uh, from, what's his name, uh, uh, Richard, uh, uh, from back in the 50s, uh, Little Richard, right? Little Richard did uh, Long Tall Sally. And then it was covered by, like, everybody. Pat Boone covered it. Elvis Presley, Presley covered Long Tall Sally. Uh, Buzz Clifford, uh, The Kinks. The Beatles covered it. Uh, uh, Cactus, Elvis Presley, freaking Scorpions and Molly Hatchet covered it. All right? So that's like a, a very famous song, actually. Uh, and uh, goes on. So, and, and if you, she comes and goes, if you've heard the song, you get that. She comes and goes. But then he says, got diamond rings all through her nose. Is that all we were fighting for? Somewhere in my hallucination, I thought we were giving peace a chance. That's obviously a song reference, but maybe a larger reference. But what's a revolution? So you say you want a revolution, right? Okay. When the music plays and no one wants to dance. We paid the price in Vietnam while crosses burned in Birmingham. I'm sighing. In Memphis now, the church bells ring while L.A. crowns a different king. Can't we all get along? That's, that's, that's pretty obvious, right? So, I mean, paying the price of Vietnam, we get. While crosses burned in Birmingham. Okay. Um, so that's the, obviously the civil rights, and we're sending people who had no equal rights off to fight our war for us as well. But in Memphis now, so Martin Luther King, of course, was assassinated in Memphis. Of course, when you think of the king of Memphis, you also think of Elvis Presley. It could be a double entendre there. And, but I, I think it's really King, Martin Luther King Jr. because while L.A. while LA crowns a different king, can't we all get along? Well, can't we all get along was Rodney King. And this is from the mid-'90s, right after the, the Rodney King riots. Hi-ho, silver, don't you know? I just got faxed from, Ty, from Tokyo. Is that what we're still fighting for? That's a way of saying, basically, are all the wars fought for the corporate interests? And... Again, back to the chorus. Somewhere in my hallucination, I thought we were giving peace a chance, but what's a revolution when the music plays and no one wants to dance? Fat chance. And there's some more to it, and I'll play the song for you in a second. But I almost feel like what these guys are saying here is 
So us in the music industry that we're all anti-war and give peace a chance and talking about revolutionary thinking and all and, and thought we had all these people listening to us because they all showed up and they cheered at our concerts, were, were we all kidding ourselves? Is that our hallucination? So is my hallucination the hallucination of, you know, basically rock stars as a whole? Because there is another line in here that bears listening to if you think about it. Um... Where is it? I've, I've missed it. Give me just a second. Oh, there it is. Going insane with the fun you've had. Who's to blame when it all goes bad? You never know where you're going to go. Sliding down a greasy rope. Check your watch. There goes your hope of hanging on. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it does seem like that. Like The hallucination here is that all of these guys thought they were part of a movement and their music actually was changing the world. But if you look back through history, what do we say in the history segment? You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And, and was it all a hallucination? And I think it's a good thing for us in the liberty movement, too. It's very easy for us to hallucinate that we're making a bigger impact than we are on, on the broad scale things. And that's why I always bring it down to what can you do in the area that you actually influence and control? Because you can hallucinate yourself into believing you're making some better utopic world or that someday all of the Rockefellers of the world will crumble to the ground and tremble or something like that. Or that the, the apocalypse really come and, and the preppers will be the one that's ready and will survive and everybody else will be gone. Or, or whatever else you want to hallucinate on. And that all ends up with focusing on the things that you're concerned with but you don't have control over. Stick to your circle of influence and your circle of control. And you won't be having your own version of my hallucination in the future, like these rockers who maybe questioned a lot of things that their whole industry stood for and said that they were going to make happen. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.